Well, lads, how are you? How are you getting on? Good now. More sport this morning, is it? There's a fair <laughs> bit of sport, yeah. That's the common theme on this. Sometimes we squeeze in some other stuff, but generally... OTB AM. Live weekday mornings from 7.30 on the OTB Sports app. OTB AM with Gillette Labs. Get the ultimate shave or your money back. Neon Night Edition, available now. All right, you're very welcome along. Tuesday morning, I want to say, here on OTBAM. If I'm uh, wrong, you can let me know in the comments. YouTube.com forward slash off the ball. Make sure you hit subscribe if you want to leave a comment. You can also uh, get us on the old WhatsApp. 0879180180 is the uh, number for that one. Or, of course, uh, you can get us on Twitter, at off the ball AM. Uh, every time I read the um, number for the WhatsApp, I'm reminded of the story, whether or not it's true, that one time Jimmy White was in uh, Lily's. And the Irish football team were in there and they were very excited about the fact that like celebrity Jimmy White was there. Oh yeah. And so McAteer shouts, 180 at him. Oh. He tried, I, he tried. I don't know if it's true. I, I assume it's not true, Jason. Um, <laughs> and, but still, the story's too good not to repeat. Yeah, yeah. He made an effort, to be fair. Good morning, Shane. Good morning, how are things? Good morning, Kathleen. Good morning. Uh, Shane, you're uh, slightly hungover this morning. Ah, was that the Always Sunny podcast? I think with half of Dublin last night in Three Arena. Literally every single Instagram story I looked at last night was people at the Always Sunny podcast. One of my friends actually FaceTimed his girlfriend in from Canada for it, oh. for a section of it, and I was like, that's dedication to the cause. Are, like, are you allowed to do that? Is there not like a... Probably not. It no. was like a 30 second, like, look where we are sort of thing. It wasn't. Yeah. It was one of those weird ones. Because no copyright. Yeah, exactly. Myself and the brother were, were right over against one of the walls for our seats. We paid good money for these seats, and most of the show was you had to see the big screen to see the clips they were putting up and stuff you like, can't see the big screen from the seat no we were like oh. literally this is ridiculous so like within 10 minutes we just moved over and got ourselves a nice set oh because it seat. wasn't full wasn't it? there was like a few empty seats All right. not many empty seats but we made, we made the most of our uh, opportunity kind of like people not turning up for one reason or another sort of empty seats exactly yeah, yeah yeah handful um, but it was really a good fun Kristen Olsen uh, shows up the uh, wife of Rob McElhenney who's fantastic in the show people who are fans of Always Sunny will know her um, they were kind of hinting at it the whole time they're like oh I wonder what time it is over in Los Angeles where she is tonight and then of course she, she lands out in the second half of the show it's very good though very good the bit broken of course by the fact that they do the same joke in, in, in England yeah <laughs> now they, they kept getting uh, brownie points from the Irish crowd by uh, shouting at how much they hate England they were like they would just randomly stand up and say England was shit compared to this and then everyone would go buck for, for about five minutes. And, uh, oh, really, please. I was going to yeah, say, yeah. we're such a simple crowd. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And uh, yeah, they referenced the imperialism of, of England and, and why they hated England. And I was like, you guys didn't say this when you were in London. Did, did you? they say it? Oh, no. I doubt it. It's funny, yeah. <laughs> but they did, really they did pick Wales for the football team, obviously, as opposed to England. Which True. Is relatively yeah. interesting. Was there yeah. much Wrexham trash? There was absolutely none. Uh, there was kind of half a hint at, oh, look at Rob Bone in a football team. And it literally lasted two seconds. Um, but it was a lot of fun. Charlie Day is hilarious. So, so, yeah, it's Charlie Day, Rob McElhenney. Rob McElhenney, Glenn Howerton, who plays Dennis on the show, and Kirsten Olsen. And then uh, Megan is the, the um, writer on the show who, who kind of runs the podcast, is almost the, the MC, I guess, the, the person in between. So they all do the podcast. Yeah, yeah, oh, except right. for Kirsten Olsen. <clears throat> yeah, it's uh, Megan and then the three lads do the podcast. It's a fairly uh, all-star cast to be travelling around doing a podcast. Oh, yeah. It kind of shows, I suppose, where podcasting has actually gone in recent yeah. years. And how much money you make from selling out <laughs> yeah. the three arena. It how helps. much was it? I, I, th- I think tickets were like, tickets were 45, maybe right, 50 okay. quid. Uh, and it looked to be a sellout. I think they have another night sold out tonight in the three arena. I'm not sure if they have another a third night this week, but certainly a second night tonight. But um, yeah, when you see the the 
crowd for podcasts. <laughs> like, Ka-ching. it's quite insane. I know Blind Boy does Vicar Street quite often. So, yeah, it turns out podcasts are pretty popular. Who would have known? Was it good? It was good. It was very, very good entertainment. Funny, I met one of my mates afterwards, and I was like, "That was brilliant, wasn't?" It? He was like, "I thought it was crap, but I wasn't drinking." He wasn't drinking, and I was like, um, "I don't think the drinking made it fun, more fun for me." I think, I think it was fun regardless. But my brother was the same. He was like, "Yeah, that, that was very, very solid and entertainment." Was your mate a fan of the podcast? He was. Yeah, yeah. Oh, no, right. sorry, a fan of the show. There's a lot of people there who are like fans of the show. Some were fans of the show and the podcast. Right. People were literally as, as clips were coming up on screen. People were quoting it out loud. You could hear the entire. Right. Auditorium kind of quoting things back. So It is one of those proper cult kind of shows. Like, oh, I'd yeah. never watched it before. And then during lockdown, lived with two people who absolutely loved it. So it was like every night you were just watching like three or four episodes. You almost go into like a bit of a daze because some of the episodes as well are like relatively trippy or something. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> when you're watching multiple of them in a row. It's only like 20 minutes long. So like yeah. you can go down dark, dark hole watching. There are a gazillion of them as well. That's yeah. the other thing. It's been going for such so, uh, such a long period of time. Exactly. So, yeah, okay. That was one thing that happened last night, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, Liverpool are back, right? This is there, There's no way that we're going to be lulled into a false sense of security by Liverpool putting up an incredible performance, absolutely walloping their opponents, and they're definitely not going to let us down the next game they play, mm-hmm. are they? This has not happened at all this season. How do you judge where Liverpool are at? How do you judge where Liverpool are at? Next season, I think you judge where Liverpool are at. Maybe. This season is a bit of a write-off. I mean... You know, is it is it beyond the bounds of possibility that they could still go on? Like, what T- top four surely is out of the question at this stage. Do they do they want European football next year, or do they not want European? Well, of course football? they do. Of course they do. Wow. Now, the, like the likes of the Jude Bellingham decision, if if you want to call it a decision, the club saying they're not interested in him, you feel like that's preempting the fact that they're not going to get Champions League football for next season. But then you see a result like last night, and you're like, if they can get results like this between now and the end of the season, it's too late. You think it's too late? It's too late. Yeah, well, the points the points difference between themselves and Manchester United, for example, is quite significant. United aren't their targets. Newcastle have to be their targets, yeah. right? So, uh, Newcastle have 56 points and Liverpool have 47 points. So, can they make up nine points in eight games? Well, I mean, they can for sure, but it would take a bit of a Newcastle... That's a lot, of, a lot of points in eight games. Yeah, yeah, it's significant enough. Um, and then you just can't trust Liverpool to continue this. And no. also the... No, you can't. The Trent Alexander-Arnold handball... Which like, is like the most obvious handball. I'm, I'm, I was watching with the sound down going, oh, well, they're obviously going to take this back. And then yeah. Gakpo's still celebrating and it's like they've kicked off. Why are you kicked off? Where, where's the VAR? Yeah. What's going on? Apart, and I was chatting to Phil about this outside. It's like if Trent himself had, had lashed it in from, from there, the goal would not have stood. It's because the play goes on and he's not the direct person involved in the goal, apparently. The rules are so flaky and grey. But why did the referee just not stop it? And go, oh, that was a handball. Yeah, well, this is the thing, though. They let the, they let the play go on, don't they, just to see what, what, what's going to happen. But then, yeah, you've got to... Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's a bit ridiculous. Now, of course, it's 6-1 in the end, so probably takes away from the controversy a little bit, but it was a significant goal <laughs> at a significant time. If flaky leads get uh, flaked and feel like the world is against them because the world is against them, mm. that, I think it has a material impact. Well, or Lee, or, uh, you almost feel like Leeds are screwed now as well. Sinistera gets the goal and you're thinking, well, this is, this is a chance. They're, they're, they could come back, they're at home, there's a bit of momentum behind them. I know you love that word, Jer. But Liverpool just pushed on. And if you look at the Premier League table now at the moment, and you're a Leeds fan this morning, plenty of you in Ireland, by the way, as well, you're concerned. Two point steers, relegation spots. I feel like they've been concerned for a lot longer than just last <laughs> night, though, as well. <laughs> they, they were born concerned. 
Uh, but yeah, it's, it's Southampton in the bottom 23, Leicester in 25, Forest in 27, and then you have just Everton above them on goal difference and uh, Leeds two points clear of that. I don't feel like they're doomed after last night at all. I, I feel like, you know, you get hammered in one of these games, everybody goes off and has a few days off and then you come back in and you, you go again. Like, um, I, I I'm sure the Leeds fans feel pretty grim about life, but mm. so do the Everton fans, so do the Forest fans. And uh, it's uh, actually interesting, Liverpool have Forest next. Yeah. I mean, Perfect game for Liverpool. It is a perfect game for Liverpool. <laughs> it's at Anfield. But then they're away at uh, West Ham and there's Spurs at home. Then they're Fulham at home and they're Brentford at home. So they've a lot of home games in a row. Mm. And maybe maybe you give them... Tough opposition though. Fulham, Brentford, like, they're the exact type of teams that travel not, away places and just pick up results. Not at Anfield. Not, not at Anfield. Maybe not. I think um, so. Look, maybe maybe this is it. Maybe the Liverpool fans are feeling themselves this morning. And we're raining their parade. Maybe top four is still on. This would be the most remarkable achievement of, of his entire career. Which is not, not toppling Bayern Munich, not winning the European Cup, not winning the league for the first time. This getting fourth from here. Imagine the glory at the end of the season. Which do you think is more likely right now, guys? Uh, Arsenal winning the title or Liverpool getting top four? Uh, <laughs> the Arsenal fan in the corner. <laughs> Uh, keeping things real I, I'd be leaning towards neither of them being all that like right. I think Arsenal winning the title is more likely than Liverpool getting top four at the moment mm. just purely on the fact that Arsenal at least have a bit of a cushion at the top of the table whereas Liverpool do have a lot of points to make up to yeah. get that top and I also think there are other teams above them as well who are possibly better positioned to make up the points and get a couple of results yeah um, and go on that run. So sorry, you said Arsenal are more likely than Liverpool. Yeah, which is correct according to the bookmakers. Uh, bookies have it uh, six to one, thirteen to two for Liverpool mm-hmm. to make top four, and Arsenal are still seven to four to win the league. Yes. Favorites? No, 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 nine to four favorites, nine to four on favorites. Manchester City. That's mad, isn't it? No, it's not bad. It's been such an <laughs> upsetting a, couple of days for Arsenal supporters. Makes, I mean, it makes perfect sense. West Ham at the weekend, losing Kim Little yesterday Ugh. ahead of like the Champions League at the weekend and a possible title run. And Caitlin Fjord also out for the rest, well, at least a month. Already losing Mead Miedema. Uh, <laughs> it's not great, is it? I literally, like, I, I actually, and I, I've said this a couple of times that I've been on the show, I have enjoyed the high points of the season because I knew at some stage it was all going to come crashing down around my ears. And I did. I actually, it was one of the, the Premier, and I, it's not over yet, but this has probably been one of the most enjoyable Premier League seasons that I've had in a long time. Mm. And I'm going to remember that. And I'm going to remember how happy I was. You'll be so sad, though, if it doesn't work out. I no, I like I always had this feeling that we weren't going to do it. Like I I as much as I enjoyed it, I just always thought that City at some stage were going to come back. Like I looked at our squad depth, like the just general ability of a player like Haaland to get goals no matter what and I was like, I don't really think this is gonna happen for us. I don't think we could last the whole season. But there's it's a good. I I think you guys were kind of right when you were saying the other day that Arsenal would almost be better if they were still in at least one other competition. I think they're feeling the weight of just being in the Premier League race and having nothing else to focus on. And if we don't win this, well, we've just blown an absolutely massive lead for yeah. our own. It's not even like we came up against teams that were very good and blew it against them. It's we came up against teams and faltered when we should be firing so we, on. Like Rio Ferdinand was putting up on. 
Twitter yesterday, a couple of clips from his podcast, and he was talking about the fact that would you prefer to be an Arsenal player, finish second in the league and not win a trophy? Or yeah, or with, with all due respect, with all due respect, uh, this is the man who was like, oh, we don't celebrate the Carabao Cup, and now it's a, now it's a great thing. Think, t- think the all how the terrible turntables have turned, uh, Rio. You're <laughs> celebrating the Carabao Cup as like, oh, we're better than you. But I mean, third, third in the Carabao Cup is de- is better. It's than, not than second and no. It isn't. No it isn't because at the start oh. of the season. Because at the start of the season, you're at Manchester United, where you're expected to win actual trophies as opposed to the Mickey Mouse Carabao Cup. Carabao Cup. Or Mickey Mouse Carabao Cup. So if Aston Villa won the Carabao Cup, you'd be like, oh, Are Aston Villa, Mouse. Manchester United expectations the same, Shane? No. With respect, this is Rio Ferdinand, who would have branded the Carabao Cup Mickey Mouse. We didn't celebrate that. The Cup stayed in the corner. We had bigger fish to fry. We were Champions League contenders. We were Premier League contenders. It's all well and good for him, like, trying to stoke the flames of... Ah, you're still only Arsenal and you managed to bottle the league but it's absolute nonsense from his perspective to be saying that Arsenal haven't had a better season than Manchester United this year mm. they haven't uh, if Arsenal finished second if Arsenal finished second see. I would prefer to have had Manchester United season because uh, no you wouldn't based on have. United's current expectations United's current expectations the last 10 years are give us any trophy possible forget about the Premier League and the Champions League like Carabao Cup is where it's at like this season, if they go on and win, that is cup not is the United's expectation <laughs> the for the last get, ten years. Well, if United United could win another trophy this season, yeah. if the FA Cup and Europa League as well. That's, so like, but that's not what he said. That's not what he said. He said if they just won the Carabao Cup. So if they just win the Carabao Cup, yeah, they have to either get beaten by Brighton or Manchester City in the FA Cup, right? Yeah, that has to be part of the season. You're going to be like, yes, what a great season! Knocked out by Brighton or our nearest rivals in the final and Hooray. get top four in the league. We won the Carabao Cup, but what? Yeah, we're happy with that. No, what? But what are you talking Champions about? Champions League qualification and a, and a trophy in the, at the end of the season. That's, are, that's Arsenal not genuine title contenders for the vast majority of the season? From from nowhere, from like, will they get top four? Unlikely. Yeah, but do you to get, a bit where they're now suddenly genuine title contenders and potentially genuine title contenders next season. We'll we'll wait and see. Like, if you genuinely went to the depths that Arsenal have gone to over the last recent couple of seasons, and if United were in that place, because they were never in the place that Arsenal have been, for, than like they haven't been rebuilding in the same way that Arsenal have been since Arteta came in, and you had a season where you went to second, led the like whole league for the majority of the year and we're pipped by a pretty insane Man City team when you look at like the squad mm. the fact that they probably have about two players in most positions that they could swap in and out and no it doesn't make that much of a difference you go up against that and you get second and okay yes it it is an explosion you would say that what United have done this season is more impressive than that like Arsenal have come from nowhere, literally, <laughs> over the last couple of seasons. United never sunk to those sort of depths. No, but like I feel like a trophy. Like, when you look back and when a player looks back on their career, trophies are what matters. It's not second place finish. Like, but like I, I, proper trophies matter as well. Like not the Carabao or, Cup. Of course, if we rank trophies, the Carabao Cup comes at the the bottom of those trophies. For like, it's not as big as the Champions League, the Premier League, or the FA Cup. Would you rather be Arsenal or Manchester United heading into next season? on the basis of this season's performances? Well, it, league, league terms, of course, Arsenal. But I mean, you, you, so you had, had a better season. Manchester United are not far off. Well, we'll see. We'll the, see. The golf isn't that big and Newcastle aren't that far off as well. Like a, it, a big summer for Newcastle. I just thought it was, it was a bit rich from Rio to be like, oh, we've, we've definitely had a better season because we won this thing which we don't, which we don't respect. <laughs> which, we, like, which we don't respect. Of course, he's not going to respect it because he's won everything. But these current United players... like. Hadn't won so a trophy. At tell me, tell me the last trophies that they won when when Mourinho had that season where they won trophies. 
When Mourinho won the Europa League and the uh, League Cup, and that was a real stepping stone to to uh, contending for a title, wasn't it? That was a real. We're we're on it now. We're we're on the upward trajectory. The football we're playing is is great. Finished second in the league as well. Finished second in the league. But yeah, were exactly. They, but were they, but, but were do we remember they, that? We, no, we don't remember that. Were they in the race? In the league. We remember the trophies and the, how, the images. How close of was the race? Was it was it a title race or was it just we managed to like come from fourth to finish second? That's what happened. They weren't in the title race. There was but, no. But the point is, no one remembers those second place. You're not going to look back in your career and say, "Remember we, we absolutely remember. Our fans are going to remember it. Oh, look! Remember that time we finished second to Man City, and I think the Liverpool fans remember pushing Man City to the end of the season. Everybody remembers title races. Everybody remembers uh, Arsenal and Liverpool and Michael Thomas and like there, there being an actual title race. People, of course. But fans don't think back on it fondly because it's like, oh, oh, it was not great that we had a title race. No, no, no. We lost the title race. It was crap. People don't remember. I've literally just told you this has been one of the most enjoyable seasons that I've had in like over a decade because we were like up there and you actually saw like a... And kind of in the same way you're saying with this United team, like you can see the positive trends. You can see that Ten Hag has come in and actually Mm. finally given you something to fight for. That's exactly what I'm saying about Arsenal season. The only difference is we actually had potential to win the league. True. I Whereas just United think didn't. you need to get, get your medals and trophies out. Like at the end of your career, fans will remember that. United fans will remember the Carabao Cup final this year for for a few years. Like that that will that was a happy memory. They could still win the Europa League if they get over Sevilla on Thursday night. If they, they could still if win they the don't FA Cup. win if they don't win the Europa League, it's a bit of a bottle job. But they, they're, but they're but by far the most storied, most successful club left in the competition. Yeah. In terms of like uh, titles won, money. Turnover, fan base. But what's the advantage of winning the Europa League? Getting Champions League qualification. So if they get top four anyway in the Premier League, does it really matter winning the Europa League or not? So what, but at the same time... so it's a trophy, of course. What, no, 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 no. I'm saying that if they only win one trophy from this position where they're in the semi-final of the uh, FA Cup and they're still like 2-0 up at home to Sevilla, um, they, have you seen the Goldberg... Um, uh, clip. Oh, fantastic! Oh, it's yeah, yeah, yeah. Never fails to deliver. Doing the rounds where it's like, ah, oh, severe. No sign of them scoring. They've been completely blunt. And then Goldbridge is like he's that just character that leans into it. I think. Um, but no, anyway, I, I mean, look, that's the, the, that's your tribe there. Uh, Seven forty-eight this morning, and, and they're all coming out to defend you as well. Don't worry, you go on, lads. Keep her lit in the comments. OTBAM with Gillette Labs. Get the ultimate shaver. Your money back. Neon Night Edition available now. Here's what's coming up between now and 10 o'clock for you on OTBAM. James Tracy's going to rejoin us, talking to us about Leinster. He's going to pick a Leinster second team that uh, we would stick up against uh, Munster, Ulster or Connacht. Uh, Frank Rainey's going to update us on maybe for the final time on the Regency trial. Although maybe not because the Minister for Justice says that um, the investigation into the Regency um, murder is still ongoing. Uh, one JD, please. That's John Duggan at eight forty. Um, Sports news at eight forty-five. After that, Harry Pryor is going to talk to us about Liverpool. Alex Denning is uh, one of our brightest young drivers. Uh, he's going to talk to us at ten past nine, and uh, we'll play out with some Lydia Hislop from last night's show. Um, so she's obviously talking about the protest at the Grand National protest at the snooker last night. You managed to miss this, Shane. <laughs> I should but, sorry yeah. say people are reminding me it's Caitlin Olsen. I don't know what I said, but said Kristen, I think it was. Okay, Kristen Olsen. It's Caitlin Olsen, of course it is. Um, yeah, protest at the snooker. I was on, on the way to the three arena last night when I saw my my phone starting to uh, to hop. All my snooker snooker friends hashtag snooker friends uh, messaged me going, Did you, have you seen this? I was like, oh my God. Like, I've never in, in all my days watching the World Snooker It almost, like, for anyone who's listening and can't see it, but for anyone that's watching on YouTube, it almost looks like performance art, the photos yeah. that are up there. 
Well, Ronnie O'Sullivan's good mates with Damien Hurst, the artist who uh, is, is often in the crowd at the Crucible. This was not a Damien Hurst moment. This was Just Stop Oil, uh, who've got the publicity that, that I think they were looking for. These are the guys who um, were blocking the motorways and roads of, of England, protesting and trying to raise awareness for environmental concerns. Um, and they've got their back page headlines. They've got their push notifications yesterday. It was just one of those mad moments where you're like, this is really disruptive because... You know, you could run onto a pitch at a football match or you could even run onto a track at an athletics meet and things just continue once the protesters are, um, I guess, taken away. But in snooker, if you if you open a bag of orange powder on a snooker table, it turns out, the base does not react too kindly to it. You had Rob Walker out Hoover and try and Hoover it up. They had to recloth it overnight, apparently, and uh, that match between Joe Perry and Robert Milkins is to uh, resume at 7pm this evening. So, so there would have been play this morning. Yeah, and, and like, so the last night, the session last night had just begun. It was in the opening frame, 11 points to nil, I think. Um, and so they had to stop the session, stop the this morning session, of course, and resume 24 hours later. So it's it's a bit annoying for the fans who had to sit there and pay the money for the tickets front row. Security probably are looking at themselves this morning going, ah. Maybe we could have done a bit more there. On the other table, of course, Mark Allen was in action and uh, the referee, Olivia Martil, who I've spoken to an off-the-ball before, um, over COVID, he was the guy who literally stops the, the, the female protester from coming onto the other table and I think she was trying to glue herself to the table. She got managed to get one hand into one of the middle pockets and get no further. Um, but it was just one of those mad moments where like, this is... This is not going to be forgotten for some time. Snooker is in the mainstream, folks, so I'm not, I'm not complaining. We're all talking about snooker this morning. Maybe not the action, but still. I think because as well, it's so quiet in snooker, it made more of an impact than, say, if you see someone running onto a pitch at a football match and there's like 50,000, 60,000 people. You know, you just hear this yelling and then all of a sudden there's a guy on the table and the paint or whatever it was going everywhere mm. it kind of like it made you jump like I, I just saw that I think I actually saw the video you tweeted out and that was how I first saw it and even though I was expecting something it still like gave me a bit of a yeah. fright whenever your man came out some people are saying it's a great advertisement for a Baraka do we know what it was I don't know what it was it said that it was dried paint right. in the papers paint. today but it made quite a mess um, it's just one of those little crazy moments um, it's funny because when, you, when you're at the Crucible and I'm heading over this weekend you are searched quite vigorously going in so I don't know how they managed to, to pull this off but it was just one of those things where like is this actually happening um, Like to, to, I've seen them trying to, to recloth tables overnight and move tables it's a process it's a tedious I, process. I do have to wonder why surely there's a table next door that they have you know uh, ready to go just in case something might happen a contingency plan maybe in the event that something you know I, are there only two tables at the crucible there's there's a two table setup and then the semi-finals on uh, so overnight between the quarters and semis they turn it into a one table setup right in the right in the middle of the room it's quite tight with the two tables uh, but you see that the tables are so heavy and have to be put together and reclothed and uh, but why do they have to be reclothed every time well, you see, the, the players notice if a cloth is hard or fast or if it's bouncing too much or if it's rolling off a little bit. Uh, rolling off sounds bad. Yeah, de- de- certainly bad. Um, it's not the pub. No. but Is pl- it not kind of like, though, I don't know if you're playing at Wimbledon or something and you just kind of accept over the course of a tournament that the surface is going to change and you're supposed to adapt your game to For deal sure. with that? For but, sure. But if all of the players are start complaining about the conditions, then yeah, that's, that's when they... Same for all of them, Shane. <laughs> same for all of them, you know? It's true, yeah. And, and some players used to use a certain type of chalk, 
Uh, I think Ronnie O'Sullivan used to get in trouble for using a certain type of chalk that left marks on the table and other players who used a cleaner chalk weren't happy with it and it would certainly affect the, the conditions. So snooker is one of those sports where it's like if there's even a draft in the room, people notice, the players notice. Um, obviously if there's a fly, it's like the, the episode of Breaking Bad, everyone just stops and waits until the fly is... Uh, arrested. Killed. This is why I'm Killed. saying it's shocking that a man comes screaming out of the crowd from nowhere <laughs> well, because the, the, if you're disturbed by a breeze or a fly. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's the supporters. You can hear the fans on the TV as well cursing, uh, and literally, you're just waiting for the fans nearly to run on and take this. Take this. I guy genuinely away. thought that was going to happen with some of the stuff that the fans were shouting. I almost think they have such reverence for the tables and like that space of where the people are competing that oh. they're almost kind of like rocking in and out of their seat, being like, "I want to go down there, but I'm also not oh, going to go down there." The table's paradise. The table is literally you can't touch a snooker. Like I remember interviewing Ken Doherty at the World Snooker Championship a few years ago for a documentary, four off the ball, and um, we stood beside the table. Like, but fans were were coming to their seat and we were literally and he was like you can touch it if you want and I was like no I'm not touching it I absolutely don't want to touch that like literally it, it's just it's so clean and pristine looking I'm like I, I don't want to even what about all the oil on the people's fingers like over the course of the tournament exactly and sorry in the middle of the tournament maybe you've already said this I was just reading some of the comments do you do they change it ever is they, or do they ever re they do recloth it yeah yeah in the middle of the tournament yeah, well, yeah. At, ti- at times why aren't they quicker than this so I was doing 24 hours <laughs> it seems like they're just being a little bit of a, a little bit dramatic about the whole oh someone poured some stuff on our thing it's ruined I, I actually like, think it's, it's any publicity <laughs> it's good for the Just Stop Oil protesters they've got the headlines but it's also good for World Snooker I think they're looking at this going ah oh, yeah it's caused a bit of a delay but I mean Snooker everyone's the, talking about as you snooker. say snooker on the front and back pages yeah it's fantastic uh, they were thinking it was going to be the Ronnie O'Sullivan versus his opponent on Friday oh Hossein Vafai this is going to be juicy they have been they have been slagging each other off for like Hossein Vafai was interviewed yesterday and he was like he beat Ding John Wee 10-6 and he said yeah Ronnie used to be my hero not anymore um him, he's one of the numpties that um, Ronnie looked down on. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. 100%. Ronnie, a bit of a bully punching down. True, yeah. Ronnie has a, a mug that, that says numpties on it that he was given and, and still uses quite often. Um, but yeah, Ronnie, Ronnie, I think Ronnie needs a little bit of spice and juice to... Well, that's what he says, yeah. That's what he says. I mean, so. I'm, I'm, so, I'm so unenthusiastic about this thing that I'm great at <laughs> that I, I need someone to enthuse me. Um, yeah, he's, he's got a book coming out as well. So uh, watch this space. Yeah. Damien Hurst did. Um, there was one of those documentaries. Damien Hurst has a has given him, gifted him a, mm. a painting, which I presume is you know worth as much as he's won in his oh, entire career. Ridiculous. So, yeah, yeah. Uh, right. Um, a couple of things we need to talk. Todd Bowley was in, by the way. Uh, Todd Bowley was in chatting to the players, giving them. You made it sound like Todd Bowley just popped in to say hello to us. Studio here, yeah. <laughs> a few, uh, a few of his thoughts. I wonder, was it inspired by the fact that he was getting crap from the Chelsea fans? So. Yesterday, we saw pictures of Todd Bowley looking up at Chelsea fans and speaking to them, them looking down on his box and giving them a piece of their mind. And then today we hear that he went in with a couple of the other co-owners and uh, spoke to the players for an hour afterwards. Apparently this is a thing. Apparently Todd Bowley just does this. And it's like, this is not something new, but... I think the length of time seems to be new. And also the fact, apparently, he picked out one particular senior player that's been signed over the last year and gave them a really hard time. And they were the, one of the few people that were picked on throughout right. the whole thing. Okay, do we, know, not, do we know who it was? No, none of the papers will say who it actually was. It's farcical. It's f- what does Todd Bowley know about football? Sorry, Todd Bowley's come up with some ideas that you're like, "Hey man, he's the clearly. owner. He's the owner. He's the owner." But that does not give him right he to knows, go to the dressing room. He knows room. his name is on the bottom of the checks. <laughs> knows a lot. 
Leave it to the managers who have lived and breathed football. Yeah, Frank Lampard's doing a great job. No, but like he's fo- doing a great job. Frank Lampard knows a lot more about football than Todd Bowley does. So stay out of the dressing room. What do you, what do you have to say? Go in and say your few words for like a minute or two. No problem. As my kids would say, debatable. But anyway, uh, Dwayne Griffin says, as an Arsenal fan, I'm happy with the progress Arsenal have made in the position they're in. Bare, genuinely contending for the title and pushing a great city team. Not too bothered what United are doing. Uh, Dyer Schottensig Arsenal pushing this incredible city with a devastating Haaland when they weren't even forecast top four at the start and Man UFC fans moaning that it's a failure United fans extremely bitter Arsenal are pushing City this year it's that bad that they would rather see their nearest rival City win the league over Arsenal Stephen Nolan Arsenal have bottled the league so badly Shane Corcoran don't be so ridiculous Ger, if they don't win the title it's not a successful season United have one trophy in the bag and still in contention for two more trophies yeah Shane that's right and if they bottle those trophies is it a great season what do you mean bottle well, that was Rio's. In Rio's assertion, it was like, they've, all, they've already bottled them. Lose to an Evan Ferguson-inspired Brighton. Well, he's I mean, going to be injured. Uh, hopefully he's back. Be uh, better season, win FA Cup, League Cup and Europa Conference League and finish fifth or finish fourth and win nothing. I'd pick the former. Uh, so West Ham are going to have a better season than Arsenal. Is that, is that what you're telling me? If Arsenal, if they win the Europa Conference League? All right, Fergus. I'll, I'll have whatever you're smoking this morning. Uh, Jerry, you have to look at the time frame. You have to take time frame into consideration, says Chris, when talking about trophies. Rio winning the Carabao Cup is completely different to this United team winning the Cup. It's all relevant, he says. You mean relative, I think, uh, Chris. Um, not to be pedantic, but uh, I, I accept your point. But Rio can't have it both ways, is what I'm saying. And Shane trying to, oh, this is a great season. We spent a quarter of a billion on players Sorry, in the summer. And Villa fans amazing. still sing about the European Cup in the 80s. Like it's a European Cup. Yeah, I know, but it, it's an actual it's a European trophy, Cup. Exactly. It's not the Carabao Cup. It's the European Cup. You get a gold star. That's what you get the stars for, Shane. Le- yeah? The League Cup is not a bad uh, like, trophy. It's the worst trophy available. It was, granted. It was literally the, the thing that drove Alex Ferguson to dementia. To, to sorry, demented, not dementia. Um, <laughs> and uh, the the anyway. <laughs> I just think that thought's gone. You got yeah. we got to go. Seven fifty nine. OTBAM with Gillette Labs. Got the ultimate shaver. Your money back. Neon Night Edition is available now. Coming up after the break, James Tracy has created an alternate Leinster fifteen to take on the rest of the provinces. OTBAM with Gillette Labs. Get the ultimate shave or your money back. Neon Night Edition available now. It's uh, two minutes past eight. James Tracy is with us. James, good morning to you. How are you? Thanks for having me back. Uh, welcome back. Um, Leinster have been pretty good since you've uh, since you were last here. Yeah, not like, too bad. Not unbelievable too bad. the bits and pieces that they've managed to do with in in all different circumstances. The first team against Ulster, first day out, okay. It was like first game back, second day out, absolutely sensational. And then the team in South Africa with the game dead, it looked like totally gone from them. They're like, No, no, hang on a second. We're we're Leinster, we're gonna win this game. It was remarkable. Yeah, I think I think uh a few of the, the lads, well, probably the majority of the lads would, would have been on that trip last year. And, and uh, if you don't remember, the, the Sharks game came down to the final play as well. And, you know, it was, um, I was just injured. That was, that was probably the week before the injury that finished me off. But uh, been part of the week and the prep that went in. It was such a young team. And uh, it was probably the proudest I've been after, like, a loss. But we were just, like... I've never been so close to winning a game. You know, we we were picking and going, you know, with inches to go, and and uh, and that sort of pain. You don't forget that. You know, and I think you learn more from from your losses sometimes than you do from from wins. And I think that sort of uh, lesson would have been carried into. Okay, we've been in this position before. South Africa away. It's it's very very tough place to be. Let's just stick to the the process. And um, you know, it's like. A, 
Chris Cosgrove's uh, 50-22, like talking clutch, uh, that wins in the game, you know. But there was loads of little moments uh, along the way that w- that would have helped. But you know, when when the clock's nearly done, and you know there was a, it was a long kick, they were within their own half. A lot of people won't have seen this. It's unbelievable. It's unbelievable. It, it goes to like it goes inside the five meter line. Yeah. Like. And it's travelling still, you know. It was it was one of the best fifth twenty twos I've seen, um, but it, it, purely because of the context and the execution of the skill. Um, but you know, they you still got to you know get over the line from there. And I thought the composure from from quite a young team um, there of just getting the job done and wearing the um, wearing the defence down and eking out a penalty, um, you know, nicely. It was under the post, thank God. Yeah. Um, just makes it a bit easier for everyone, but I feel like they would have scored, you know, if, if they'd gone on a few more phases anyway, um, which is a great sign of the character of the team. I think maybe um, ten years ago, uh, when a, a second string team would be out, and it would be so clearly a second string team, we never really had this expectation that these players were going to then be expected to step up to Ireland level. But at the moment, the way players are stepping up, and the way Hugo Keenan stepped up, and the way Jimmy O'Brien has stepped up, you're kind of thinking. Uh, any one of these players could actually end up not any one of them but like if you're the best player on that team at the moment and you're putting in those performances then you're not a million miles away from Ireland selection because the strength and depth at Leinster is so great that if you're actually getting ahead of the player ahead of you you're playing at international level yeah and uh, there's a there's a beauty in that and, and it's, mm-hmm. a, it's a disaster at the same time because it's so competitive at club level and mm-hmm. y- you know you could be playing pretty well and you're you don't get picked, and you know you might be the second best person in the country in your own opinion. Yeah. But you're nowhere near the Ireland squad because they can't see you play. Um, so that that's the downside. And the upside is when you're on the field, you're surrounded by uh, guys that are humming at the minute. A lot of guys like um, Ringrose is is an absolute flying form. He's even poaching balls um, the other day against Leicester. Um, but I thought like uh, a player that stood out for me who who, um, who probably hasn't got the the Ireland plaudits was was Max Deegan in uh, in that game. He, he had a few huge moments. Uh, if you remember Chris Cosgrove's yellow card, um, so he's in an offside position. He goes to intercept the ball anyway. He knocks it on. Yellow, it was a fair enough yellow card. But the ball goes past him and. Um, they would have, the Lions would have scored in the corner like Max he corner flags from about four people on the other side of the rook he runs past about four of his teammates to hit the ball out of the uh, the Lions player's hand as he goes to put it down and then they end up defending the sequence and exiting you know so they don't score yeah. you know, they're down a man but they don't score that's a huge moment in the game and, and those are the little things that you know um Make uh, the best players in the world, as well as obviously being exceptional at your role. But it's those little no talent moments um, that you know will propel him on when he gets his chance. And uh, I'm, I'm delighted to see him doing that for for the group and being a leader at such a young age. What are the, what's that like in Leinster training? Where there's a, an obvious tier order of preference. You might have world class players ahead of you in your position. Like, is there a, is there a case where in training you're like there's teachers' pets and, and favourites, or is it? very much not really the case and that's not something that you feel in training necessarily I think there's always teachers pets but at the same time like take your pick of pets uh, at the minute you know it's, it's just a great group and um, you know I, 
I feel very privileged to have been in the building with so many of them and, and it's just a great era uh, at the minute but um, yeah of course I think like we'd all be by, or lying if we didn't say in any group of people you always kind of have your fa- your favourites um, but they're favourites for a reason you know they're, they're exceptional um, professionals and uh, you know they show up on the weekend time after time it's some experience for those young players as well, getting the tour to South Africa and, and just feel that vibe of going off and having an actual couple of weeks where you have a couple of big teams. Like the, 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 these, are, these South African teams are, are serious opposition for those young players as well. Yeah, I think it's uh, it's been a great uh, addition to uh, to now the, the URC. You know, whoever, whoever was behind getting the South African teams, it's been a huge success. Uh, and I know from my own experience of going over there, like it's a really really hard place to win um, and you know that's that's fairly cliche but it, like it did, it's a different style um, of rugby over there you know it's, it's so attritional mm. they're so combative um, and they have these absolute freaks of like backs and forwards their skills like you saw some of the tries the it, like yeah. it's unbelievable you yeah. know but it, it just comes natural to them it's actually it's quite French you know the well, flair that they, they have in, in a way but they go from this you know beating the hell out you and then all of a sudden you know they're they get a glimmer of a gap and then they're gone and they're back they have these guys who are just like sprinters why 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 is the national team why does the national team play such boring rugby then <laughs> when they have all this incredible it, it, it feels almost like they're repressing that part of their character when they get to maybe it's only the world cup and maybe and the uh, lions and this time around they produce all singing all dancing rugby unfortunately it was pretty effective for them. Uh, it is, but you feel like there's there must be some way. Like this French team, for example, has um, given Dupont and Entomac free free reign to do what they yeah. want to do. While at the same time, they have the big beast of the forwards and the giant centers and the um, they've got like they've managed to get that mix of it seems flair and power. And with South Africa, I've yet to see the flair. Like they'll have one winger who they will go, okay, you can you can do this. Everybody else, crash ball, crash ball. You know, I'm obviously slightly. Yeah, I was about to say yeah. the back three are pretty, pretty yeah. good. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, I understand what you're saying, but you got to understand as well that that's their their chosen style, and they've won the World Cup with that style. Yeah. So yeah. it's hard to to give up on um, a system that's been so effective for them. Uh, and how do you stop? Like, you know, you you can know what they're going to do, and it's so hard to stop because they just have these superhumans, uh, and then they have the you know the the Colbys of the world um, and Pimpy, and like just they just wear you down, wear you down, wear you down. They play the percentages, they kick the ball um, really, really effectively, and they play the percentages, and it's worked for them. And it mightn't be the most pleasing. Uh, game to watch sometimes but it's so effective um, but yeah I, I would I would 10 times out of 10 prefer to watch a French team play um, than most of the South African games just because like as you said it's a lot of kicking very attritional you know it's not the most pleasing to the eye but my god is it effective yeah and then you see bits like that at the weekend and you're like hang on a second there's definitely something here that um, I it didn't look like uh, stereotypical South African rugby at all so with that in mind when you heard the news that Stuart Lancaster's replacement was going to be Jacques Nienabar what did you make? what was your had you, um, heard, had you heard any gossip about this? no I hadn't so the uh the as I, we, I you know we alluded to the last time each team has like a phase of like where it's good to have someone come in I think it, it's uh, from the outside looking in anyway now it's probably a, a really good addition in terms of 
my guess would be he'd fit into the defence side of things because uh, he seems to be world class at that. So uh, Andrew Goodman um, would probably step into doing the full attack, um, and then you kind of have like a specialist in, in each of the areas, uh, which I think can only be a good thing, you know. And, and I have to give testament to Leo um, and, and where he's taken this team from you know when he uh, you know, I don't want to say inherited it but uh, we were not in a good place um, for a long time and I think people forget that because we've been we've been um, dominant for, for a long time but um, the progression and always putting the team first and I've been humble enough to pick some of world class uh, coaches at, 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 um, at certain things and the effect that's had on on you know the school system, the uh, clubs, and how they're playing, which is leading into how uh, the kind of conveyor belt that people are talking about that we have at the minute. I think Stuart Lancaster was a huge part of that, and and um, he's going to want to leave his his legacy this year of of getting a win and another star. I, I mean, I, I talk about this a bit, but I I do think that like you can't underestimate the lack of ego that Leo Cullen has in bringing people in who are genuinely world class because he knows that if if Leinster's defence next season is incredible and they win a European Cup off the back of it, Leo's not going to get the credit for that in a way that like he could be putting himself forward and well, you know, he's not he's the exact opposite of a Jose Mourinho figure and it's far more successful over a long term. Yeah, and it's his strengths. Um, he he do, you know he has he's created a role now where he he plays to his strengths and he allows he enables whoever he brings in to be the best uh, at what they're very good at. And I think that's the environment. Like anyone would want to work in, it's like, yeah, what are you good at? You do that, and you know we'll find you know, you know someone else will do what they're exceptional at, and and you know we'll all go on this journey together. And and his man management and everything like that, you know. It's, Listen, I'm singing his praises here. Uh, you know, we've all had tough conversations as as players with Leo, but when you take your personal side out of it, you realise it's all for the bigger picture. You know, it's it's about the team, and uh, he's been he's been you know su- really successful so far at, at plugging the right people in and, and picking the right foreign players, as well as the the young talent and giving them opportunities, as well as getting the right coaches in. Um, I do want to just ask you about Prendergast before we move on. Um, well, yeah. He's very good. <laughs> he's very good. Yeah, good Newbridge College man as well. Very, very uh, exciting. Yeah, no, he is. He, he's he's um, he's really shown a lot of a lot of promise, and I think he's young, so we can't get too carried away in terms of like putting the hype train behind him just yet. Um, we kind of we, yeah, I know he wants it. I know he wants it. And listen, it's warranted. He's 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 showed up. You know, every time he's got an opportunity, he's been class um, for either like whether it be the twenties or you know like nice handy away trip to South Africa for your first whole start. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, no problem. Yeah, no, he's listen. He's an exceptional talent, and he needs to be nurtured. It's 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 you don't want to get you know thrown too far in the deep end and and root a player. He's got a long, very good career ahead of him. What looks like he's starting off in an unbelievable spot. He seems to have all the attributes. He's he's tall, which which can be. Um, you know, he's a big man. He's got yeah. a lot to fill out. Yeah. So that's also a good thing. Not that you want your 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 tend to be a crash ball merchant, but again, it's it's just another. It might be useful. It might not be. But like, yeah. it's probably better to be told than it is not. Was the was the expectation in Newbridge College that he would come through and, and reach this potential? Was the talk about him 
yeah, like he, this for years? Was it was it coming? Yeah, he would have been uh, earmarked as uh, an exceptional talent. Yeah, I, I think it's pretty. It's, he's, he was the same player in school than he is now. You know, right. he's, he's just yeah, he's a baller and um, he's a good that jinky head step and shoulders for a ten. Yeah, we don't we we ha- we haven't had one of those really for a long time. Yeah, well, listen, our halves haven't been too bad now. No, no, but I, I absolutely, <laughs> I obviously world class, like generational talents. But like, it's kind of a Tony Ward thing that he has. That um, it's our tens, I think, and I don't know enough about the uh, rivalry in the seventies and eighties. But um, Tony Ward had that kind of like, I'm going to Leo Messi, it, whereas the rest of them are like genius kickers and seeing space and putting players through with their hands yeah and I, th- I think it's amazing now we have another uh, another option in terms of a bit of variety and how we play the game uh, but like we've got loads of like uh, good ball players out there like Harry Byrne you, you know don't forget about you know how talented he is as yeah. well um, you know we, we were quick to forget when um, when Ross and uh, sorry Frawley as well like there's there's another he's a little bit different to the other two you know it's just um, what makes the you know I talked about kind of like um, pairings in in the front row and kind of balance what makes uh, either the Leinster or Ireland team what's what's the right fit and uh, now we have it seems like loads of options and and hopefully there'll be a a few more young guys coming up in the other provinces too that are going to shine you picked an alternate 15 for us for Leinster just to show the strength and depth at the moment and um, this is for an imaginary fixture against the first team of one of the other provinces is that fair enough? Yeah, but also it's it's the team that trains against uh, the you know the Leinster first fifteen as well. And I think that's probably an advantage uh, that that doesn't get talked about enough that that we have where our training quality is so good because we have uh, you know guys who've come up through the ranks and and are now at like international grade if you if you want to say. Um, How much contact is happening in those training sessions? Not, not like we be managed very well, right? Yeah, like the if you think you're trying to peak at, at the weekend, and there's, there's loads like I, I have friends who moved on to different clubs, and and there's different ways of doing it, but traditionally, uh, like a Tuesday, we'd have a, a little bit of a hit out. That'd be our kind of heavy day. But apart from that, there wouldn't be like much contact whatsoever, and and like there's reasons for it you know you're talking uh, injuries um, but also uh, it's the longevity of the se- it's a long season there's yeah. a lot of big games and you're just getting over it And um, how long is that intense Tuesday session is it short is it, is it- short, uh, short and sharp like the like the contact part like we're only doing um, you know you might you might never do full on but you know you're doing units and all that sort of stuff um, but yeah like the whole session like I don't want to get it wrong but it's probably like 70 minutes 60 right. 70 okay. minutes like it's not long yeah you know but some some provinces do two hours uh some teams do two hours sorry not provinces but um that's a different way to do it like there's loads of different ways of of, of training but we've always kind of been short and sharp now i say i'm not 100 percent if it is charlie higgins would probably have my head for calling it out but i've no idea but it's definitely not long okay it's it's uh, short and intense okay let's look at the alternate 15 so your front row is healy Kelleher, alalatoa your uh, second row is Baird and Jenkins. Yeah. And then your back row is Ruddock, Connors and Deegan. And Scott Penny's looking at this going, what do I have to do? Yeah, and like, again, I was kind of him and hawing of who, who, do you, who do you pick there? But I, I think... Um, 
Connors has been injured for a while and he's a very good player but like Penny's got an unbelievably bright future ahead of him he need, all he needs is a, a bit of a break yeah um, I think he's improved he's an unbelievable man for a try um it's yeah, just some people like, like can sniff them out. He, he seems to be one of the one of them, um, but he, he's he's again another like really big talent. But uh, I think Connor is like if you remember, he burst onto the scene yeah. for Ireland, and he's just at a string match in game against Italy. Or yeah, close to a, a string of really really bad injuries, uh, and I think he complements that back row really well. Um, Ruddock and and uh, Max would be really good line out options. Um, you have kind of like a big lock um, in Jenkins, uh, Baird. We've seen how dynamic and everything he is. Uh, love the balance of that front row. Um, and then very experienced in uh, Healy and Alalatoa. Yeah, is there much depth coming up behind them in in terms of props? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Like, well, I, again, uh, like Edburn you know is an exceptional he'd be a, a starter week in week out if he, if he was in a, a different team or province uh, he's been very unlucky um, Yvac Abeladze scored uh, the yeah, other day very dynamic off the yeah, base uh, but also very good scrummager uh, he's from Georgia which is I don't know a blanket state at the wall but like typically very good scrummagers and they are there's a big man and, and lo- love um Loves scrummaging. He's, he's really gotten very good on his, his technical side of things recently as well. You've Tom Clarkson coming up in a tight air prop as well. Um, Mikey Milne at Loosehead. Like there's a, a few guys who are putting their hand up there. Um, uh, obviously, Luke McGrath and Ross Byrne are your nine and ten. This is assuming that Sexton is in the first team. If Sexton, if Ross Byrne is in the first team, uh, who is the, the what the depth chart? I presume is Harry Byrne at the moment. Is Ross and Harry really, or is it Frawley? Yeah. I don't know. I can't answer that. So, it w- I think it would depend on uh, who's in, in better form at the time and, and who you're playing against. Right. Um, but yeah, you you would probably say it's Harry than than uh, than Frawls. But like, you could put Frawls in twelve. Uh, you could play both of them together. Like that's the thing with, with Frawley. He he could play um, in multiple positions. Very very talented guy. Um, but yeah, you'd probably you'd probably have the two burns. Um, yeah, I'd have Frawley probably next in at twelve. But also, it's kind of like a and or other for you know uh, for ten. But you probably yeah. have yeah Harry in there. Having Frawley in the squad, like he might be ahead of Harry in terms of the match day twenty three because he can play multiple positions. Yeah, like you can play him full back. You can yeah. play him twelve. It's just um, good and bad at at certain stages in your career because at some point you want to be like no, I'm. Um, first choice here. Yeah, it is. It is, and uh, yeah, I've, I've been lucky that I've never had that because you're either you're like Hooker, unless you're Dan Sheen, you probably play in the wing and other places. <laughs> but uh, the Hooker, you're just kind of nailed into one. But Jimmy O'Brien, uh, he kind of falls into that category, and it's been good for him. You know, it's it's it got him into um, into into squads. Uh, because he can play anywhere, but also he can play anywhere at a very high standard. Yeah, uh, that's also important. You know, it's kind of been exceptional uh, when you do get in there, and I, I think he's flying at wing, and that's probably I didn't see that one coming. I saw it like he could play ten, he could play twelve, play thirteen, fifteen, and I was I wouldn't have had him as a wing, but he's been exceptional at wing, uh, like really sensational since the Six Nations as well, where you're kind of thinking, okay, he's been on the fringe of a team he's been in a squad he's just been on the verge of being in the squad but then I wasn't quite sure if Larmer was ahead of him or not but the Leinster selectors obviously know you are ahead and oh, off you go and um, he completely justified his uh, selection the last day yes and I think again that's game time you know like that's the, we're talking about the um, 
the bitter side of having such competition when you're in the window and you're playing especially for Ireland you're automatically kind of ahead when it comes back he showed himself as as a winger for Ireland Jamie has so you know why wouldn't they give you the opportunity when you're flying he's in flying form yeah. um, I feel like it's it's a it's a, such an asset as well having a left footer on the field Um and I think that's an important reason. I, I was kind of hemming and hawing whether to to put Osborne in with Natal, but I thought it was a better balance having O'Brien there. Um, so you've got him at 13 in your team. Right? I've got him at 13, yeah. So I I, I probably would have preferred him at, at uh, full back maybe, but I feel like it's probably a better centre partnership, the two of them, um, in terms of their attributes and, and uh, the balance of kind of... Um, what they're good at and, and where they could attack the best. You've got Carney at 11, it's Tom O'Brien at 14 and Larmer at 15. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I think Tommy O'Brien, he's, he's had a long uh, injury run, but I think he's another one that, that probably hasn't gotten an opportunity. He, he is, sky's the limit for him. You know, he, he comes up with big moments. I remember that he won tackle of the year last year with a, a try saving tackle in the corner in the RDS, and he just comes up with big moments and, and loves it. Um, the, Hit a huge poach uh, against the the Lions. I'm not sure if you remember, but it would have been, uh, they had a big attack. Um, Made, made a line break through uh, a bit of poor defence he comes up with, with a poach that again was it was kind of like a, a turning point in the game and you talk about like momentum swings in that Leicester game there was a when Kalian got, got a, the yellow card there was a seven man scrum uh, Leicester had a seven man scrum it was about 50 minutes and uh it's kind of the ball game. It's the ball game. Yeah, that's it. And you're thinking, okay, so you have a decision to make as Leinster. You're like, do we put eight on and we're screwed? We're either open for 50-22. We're going to probably concede 50 metres if they attack. Um, but we won't concede a scrum penalty or we back our seven to maybe hold it out. Uh, and, you know, we're strong in the back line. And, and they went for that. But I'm not sure I remember... Uh, many scrum penalties against a scrum as good as Leicester where you've seven versus eight and you you win the penalty I think it's a real sign of the the maturity and the confidence of this group um, it, and like I remember last I was talking about you know do I what do I miss about it those sorts of moments of like your back's against the wall huge scrum you understand like when you're in that the context of if, if they get a penalty here it's now it's 17-10 they're we're defending versus we're kicking for goal and it's 20 points to 10 and, and all of a sudden the game is swung massively yeah. in our favour mm-hmm. am I right in thinking that's the one that Furlong comes up and has the and his total yeah. purple <laughs> yeah yeah they were all giving it the big one but as you said like those moments they're like they're some of my favorite scrum penalties and uh, turnover penalties they're, they're, you can't if you could bottle that up and sell it how does that team that you've picked fare against the Irish provinces the Irish provinces at full strength I think it would be very competitive I I genuinely think it would have a very good chance of of, uh, of winning the URC um, it's ridiculously strong yeah when you look at it like yeah and, and I th- I'd like to you know you'd nearly like to see it in a test environment to see how it would get on um, it the only reason I say that is, you know, the that like that the guts of that team will have played a lot of the provinces and will have played a lot of the other teams and beaten them. So I think like the it's not my opinion, it's kind of like it's it's been proven as well that they would be very competitive at uh, at the URC level. But again it's 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 hearsay, you know, we'll 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 never get to, to see it unfold properly. But um yeah, no, it's a 
it's a very strong position for them to be in. Do you feel like the gap between Leinster and the rest is is narrowing or is it getting bigger? Um, I, I, I yeah, hard to comment on. You know, it's it's intangible, really. But I think, yeah, like if you look at Munster, they're in like a, a rebuild phase in the minute. Mm-hmm. They have a few uh, really exciting young guys uh, coming through the ranks. I think Connacht, you see Scott Fardy uh, signing for them. I think that's a great coup. Will um, doing as well. Coming What's Fardy like? Uh, he's a legend, really good pal of mine. Um, he's exceptional around mall, uh, line-out, detail of all that sort of uh, combative side of things. He's the experience of being a World Cup finalist. He, he, he was one of the like leaders in Leinster for that year and like following years. He just understands uh, having your back against the wall, uh, going into kind of cauldrons, how to deal with those scenarios. Um, I think it'd be brilliant for a lot of the younger and experienced guys in Connacht because um, like a lot of the time they go in as underdogs, and I feel like yeah. that is um, he'll be he'll relish in that and, and understanding how to motivate those guys and giving them a little little tricks of the trade. Yeah, you were concerned a little bit about what the post Andy Friend life was going to be like for Connacht, but they put together a really good coaching ticket, and it feels like they've. You know, global influence, local understanding, uh, Muldoon going away and coming back. I think that's always very powerful. Like, um, you know, you go away to a high performing environment and you come back and you bring what you've learned, but you also fully understand exactly where you're from. Yeah, one hundred percent. And and I think we have we've had that with uh, with Andrew Goodman. Uh, you know, he's gone and worked in uh, some incredible environments. You know, Crusaders and. Um, you look at like Shawnee, who's gone away as well. Um, so, from my personal experience, I think that that's been amazing. I've learned from different things, and then you look at like the likes of Raj um, and where he's gone, and, and uh, he's learned so much. And, and hopefully, at some point, he'll be back in uh, in Ireland coaching, maybe in the in the long term. Uh, it doesn't look like it'll be in the short term. No, not at the moment because things are going too well. Um, very quickly, and uh, I, I, it's impossible to do justice to, to lose in, in two minutes here, but um, <clears throat> for all of Leinster's brilliance at the weekend, Toulouse were just as good, if not better. So, yeah. like, this is not in any way a gimme, and yet everybody's already talking about the final in Dublin, and I'm just always a little bit concerned when that happens, where it's like... Are we, this is DuPont. Yeah. This, is, this is like, you know, there there are very few people in world sport as dominant and brilliant as DuPont is. And so, you know, uh, beware. Yeah, and he's, he's like been nominated as World Player of the Year and won World Player of the Year and like for good reason like he is uh, almost unplayable uh, when he's in top form. But if, if you look at just the moments he has, like some of my favourite... Um, training weeks have been preparing to play against them because it's almost like herding sheep you're, you're like you're, everyone's just constantly on guard you're trying to stay connected but it's it's mentally one of the most exhausting uh, games you'll play because you always when the ball goes over there normally if you're in the middle of the field you're thinking okay just get back in the line guy left and right of me okay now what do I see in front of me let's come forward and attack but with with teams like French teams especially with DuPont teams you're also thinking okay but it's probably going to be an offload back inside and then he's going to sidestep two people and then all of a sudden there's a line break over there so you're just always like a corner flag in there but at the same time then they can attack you back over here and and if you watch the, the French how they play they'll almost you can throw a blanket over them um, and their forwards will be like bashing up, bashing up, bashing up, and then within a split second they're fanned out wide, and you, you have like some amazing talent and flair, 
but at the same time within the clubs there's little offloads and there's yeah. the intricacies of, of how they do it also they have an exceptional mall um, and I think that's another area where Leinster need to be wary is they're really good at building the back corner of the mall so um, if, if you're watching you'll see they'll be very strategic about putting like their tight head prop and one of the big guy on the kind of open side of the mall at the back and they're very good at kind of either pivoting around him um, or building the mall through him and getting it forward and I think that's something we'll need to be able to stop as well as the flair and, and staying alert for uh, DuPont and Mac Ramos okay. like you've we'll come back to, to um, the, the full preview of that but certainly it's time for us to begin the build up and start getting excited about it because it is like two of the most exciting teams in the world playing against each other in hopefully a full house yeah and I think one of the most exciting fixtures this year on the international stage was the French Irish game oh yeah let's hope we have like a repeat of that where you've just two a big slug fest of like two really good teams that want to play really exciting rugby yeah absolutely sensational like when you think about it um, it was the two best teams in the world playing against each other and the hype actually didn't do justice to what the fixture was and so we've got another 10 days or so building up to this one so um, fingers crossed James great stuff great to have you back thanks a million uh, we're going to talk to Frank Graney in just a moment about the Regency Hotel trial uh, first though in the break Pat Nevin chatting to Joe about whether Arsenal are looking over their shoulders at Man City they would have to be really really stupid really dim mm. to not see Manchester City's big shadow on their shoulder well they, they to, to what extent to, do you think City's form is adding to their nerves and it can't help it's, it's, again it's the old one you, you hate running at the front because if there's somebody on your shoulder you know it's, it's always a wee bit it's not always but it's often a bit easier if it's a tight race to be right on the shoulder coming off that last bend because you can see everything, whereas you're at the front and you've been at the front for a long time. You've got a million thoughts in your head and they're all behind you. <laughs> so it's absolutely the case. It's, it's a tough place to be and it's everyone's gunning for you, you know that. But it's And especially if you're not used to it. If you're not used to it and you've, it's the classic one which we've said before, you know, Man City know they can win it, Arsenal think they can and that's the difference mm. and Arsenal where they are they still th- think they can whereas Man City absolutely every, just about everybody on that team knows they can I mean just about the only player maybe one or two but Haaland doesn't know but I suspect he's hell of a confident he yeah. can wouldn't think he's quivering somehow Right, uh, more of that goodness on the OTB football feed from the football show. Search OTB football wherever you get your podcast. Now, uh, Frank Graney is with us this morning to talk to us about the fallout from yesterday on the front page of all of the newspapers today. The news that uh, Jerry Hutch was found not guilty by the um, Special Criminal Court of involvement in the uh, murder at the Regency Hotel. Frank, good morning to you. How are you? Good morning, Jerry. I'm good, thanks. Um, it feels like, um, certainly in the commentary today, that people felt like this decision was coming, and yet at the same time, when it was announced, there was still sharp intakes of breath in the court. Yeah, I suppose having covered all 52 days of the trial, having heard all of the evidence presented by Jonathan Dowdall and others through what was, you know, a lengthy um, and, and, and complex trial, I felt that 
Jerry Hutch was unlikely to be convicted. I felt that the decision of the Special Criminal Court yesterday was the correct decision. Um, I would have been very surprised if he was convicted on the back of the evidence because to convict Jerry Hutch, the judges would have had to believe the evidence of Jonathan Dowdall, a self-confessed liar with a very serious uh, criminal past, a man who was already serving a sentence, having admitted to being an accomplice uh, in relation to what happened at the Regency Hotel back in, in February 2016. Now, the court could have. There is precedent where, you know, the court can believe the words of somebody like uh, Jonathan Dowdall. But in the end, um, they chose not to, at least not in isolation. They were not satisfied with the evidence presented by Jonathan Dowdall. And this, of course, relates to his claim that Jerry Hutch confessed his involvement, his direct involvement. Jonathan Dowdall told the trial just before Christmas that he met Jerry Hutch in a park in Whitehall just a few days after the Regency Hotel shooting. And he claimed that Jerry Hutch had confessed to him that he was one of two gunmen who shot David Byrne uh, in the hotel a few days beforehand. This was flatly denied by Jerry Hutch, who said the meeting never took place. He denied any involvement in what happened at the Regency Hotel. And that was the specific allegation made by the prosecution, the specific case pursued by the prosecution. So when the judges didn't believe the testimony of Jonathan Dowdall, what they did next was they looked for independent evidence to corroborate, potentially support what he was saying. They were appointed to 10 hours of a secretly recorded conversation between Jonathan Dowdall and Jerry Hutch as they made their way to Northern Ireland to meet some Republican contacts of Jonathan Dowdall just a few weeks after the shooting. Unbeknownst to them, Angarda Siakana had bugged Jonathan Dowdall's Toyota Land Cruiser. All 10 hours of that conversation were played in court and the prosecution pointed to a number of things that Jerry Hutch said during the course of that conversation that they claimed supported what Jonathan Dowdall was saying. But after giving it some very careful consideration, having listened to those hours and hours of uh, secretly recorded audio, the judges were not satisfied that there was anything to corroborate what Jonathan Dowdall uh, said to them just before Christmas. And in the end, as we all know by now, they decided to acquit Jerry Hutch of murder yesterday. Was there a criticism either implicit or explicit in the um, judge's uh, decision about the charge that was taken? Because it, it seemed to be there was some suggestion that... Um, that specific allegation by Jonathan Dowdle of the uh, alleged confession uh, that Jerry Hutch made to him in the, in the park seemed to change the course of the investigation away from um, if they had accused Jerry Hutch of something else, they might have been more likely to have had a successful outcome. I don't think it's correct or fair to say that the judge was critical of the way the trial was run by the director of public prosecutions on behalf of the people of Ireland, because I suppose that's not their role. Their role as judges of the Special Criminal Court was to assess the facts of the case and to ultimately deliver judgment in this case in relation to Jerry Hutch and the two others who were convicted of, of less serious uh, offences. But she did mention a few things that suggested, I suppose, their thought process. And I thought it was very interesting when they eventually turned their attention to the ruling in relation to Jerry Hutch. And this wasn't until after lunch, until after the two co-accused were dealt with in, in the morning. And she started off by pointing out what the prosecution's case was against Jerry Hutch. And, and also, and, and maybe more importantly, what the case wasn't. And I thought that that was very interesting. So she outlined again that the prosecution's case was that Jerry Hutch was an active part 
participant that he was actually there in the Regency Hotel, dressed in tactical gear, armed with an AK-47, and more than that, that he was one of two men who shot David Byrne in the reception area of the hotel. A very, very specific allegation. And I must say, I was taken aback when the prosecuting barrister opened his case back in October. We spoke about this on your show. Uh, And that was the first time that we got an indication as to what the specific allegation against Jerry Hutch was. Looking back, perhaps naively so, I thought that the case against Jerry Hutch was going to be that he was organizing things from afar, that he was pulling the strings from afar. I never thought for one second that somebody like Jerry Hutch would have been in the Regency Hotel that day, armed with an AK-47, firing shots at an associate of the Kinahan cartel. But that was the case presented by the prosecution. That was the case that they had to prove beyond a reasonable doubt. And it seems that the evidence of Jonathan Dowdall was the cornerstone of that case presented by the prosecution. But he wasn't believed by the judges of the Special Criminal Court, as I say. And Ms. Justice Tara Burns said something else that was very interesting yesterday. She wondered what the case would have looked like if Jonathan Dowdall hadn't entered the equation. Because you have to remember that the decision to charge Jerry Hutch with the murder of David Byrne was made long before Jonathan Dowdall agreed to testify against Jerry Hutch, long before he made a statement implicating Jerry Hutch in what happened at the Regency Hotel that day. So I think it is correct to say that at the 11th hour, the prosecution team seemed to change its tack and on the opening day back in October as I say we learned what their case was that they were putting Jerry Hutch in the hotel firing shots at David Byrne Okay um, I, I note that the Minister for Justice said um, you know obviously he can't comment because of the separation of, uh, of powers which is only right but he did suggest that um, the Garda investigation into the murder at the Regency Hotel is ongoing what does that actually mean? Oh, we lost Frank. We lost Frank. We let him, we let him go. We, uh, I think that might be the end of the boxing element of that story for now. Um, but that is on the front page of all of the newspapers today. And our thanks to Frank for being absolutely sensational over the course of the... Sorry, not being sensational, for being brilliant uh, and uh, the absence of sensationalism. Um, but, you know, just uh, good old-fashioned, high-quality journalism from uh, Frank Rainey, as we've come to expect over the years uh, an absolutely brilliant journalist we're delighted to have been able to access him over the course of the trial it is 8.41 this morning here on OTBIM if you want to get in touch with us we'd love to hear from you 87 180 is the WhatsApp number you can leave a comment in the YouTube stream or of course you can get us at Off the Ball AM on Twitter Stephen Nolan says realistically you can pick a third team here and that would also probably finish top 8 in the URC <laughs> Uh, ML89 says for all their credit and plaudits have Leinster not underachieved in Europe especially considering the gap between them and the rest in the league five years since they last won it they seem to be getting more credit now the team, than the team that was sweeping up European Cups in the previous decades um, I don't know if you get beaten in the final like uh, Bayern Munich were always we have to win the league but we uh, can't guarantee we're going to win the European Cup you just have to be competitive for it and they've been competitive for it so um, there are other teams who are also good I suppose is the uh, other side of that. Now, at 8.42, we're saying good morning to John Duggan. John, good morning to you. How are you? Jaron Shane, how is the form? Good. Interesting times. Mm-hmm. What type of sensation would you like this morning? <laughs> you you take us wherever you want to go. But John, I've got a comment here. John Donnelly says, Shane, typical Man United fan, never calls out ex-players like Ferdinand when they make stupid comments. Keep up the good work, Hannah. I can sense the sarcasm. We were talking about Rio Ferdinand's comments yesterday. Would you prefer to finish second and not win a trophy at a potentially Arsenal? Or finish third, like Manchester United, and win the Carabao Cup. Cup. 
or win a trophy no no he said okay the win the Carabao Cup we'll, go with, it. we'll yeah. go with it I think it depends on the context of the club and what you've won so for Tottenham I think third in the Carabao Cup would be more important than second and no trophy mm. but if you're a club like Arsenal um, that has won a lot of cups even Arteta's first trophy was, was quite soon they won a lot of FA Cups under Wenger I think second is probably more important because it just suggests that you're only one shot off the one space off the top does Arsenal feel like uh, does, does it feel like they're going to push on from here and, and continue to challenge over the next I think there'll be more ch- I think this was the season that cut, kind of caught everybody in the hop to a degree I think it'll be more challenging for them with the fact that City are City Newcastle will have what four to five elite signings Eddie Howe was speaking about yesterday and you'll have to think that eventually Manchester United Liverpool Chelsea will get their act together in that basis then I think Arsenal this is their chance I, I do feel and they're still they're still ahead. They're two to one in the betting yesterday. I was looking, um, but if they got something at the Eddie had, it could all just turn again. I just feel that I would agree with Gary Neville that I think Arsenal are ahead of where they should be. I think they've had a great season. I think all they should get is all they should get is credit. They don't have any world superstars in their team. They're a brilliant unit, and I think they've been brilliant. Christian Stilini. I'd love to. I'd love. I'd love to be. Uh, uh, you know. I'd love to be in Arsenal's position. Arsenal talking about Declan Rice is the talk yeah. over the all over the last week. I'm not hearing any of that from Tottenham. Mm. Who would you rather be, uh, Arsenal or Man United at the start of next season? I think it depends what happens with the sale of Manchester United as a club. Mm. Um, I think in the long term, if, if imagine not, there's a chance it's still the Glazers and the Man United fans are like, yeah, we won the Carabao Cup last year. Yeah, we got the yeah. Glazers. Yeah, you feeling then, Shane? You feeling that? I don't think any Man United fan wants to, to feel the Glazers you be still in charge. Reveling in the Carabao Cup. What a great season we had. We won the Carabao Cup. Yay. Beautiful doorstepping of Sky and uh, Avram Glazer to look forward to over the next year. Uh, Eric, we'll always have clips. that Eric Ten Hag and Roy Keane moment on the pitch. <laughs> give me give me tickets to the, to the Carabao Cup final, basically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, don't laugh at the Carabao Cup, lads. It's a trophy. I know John's not going to laugh. I'm not at laughing at the Carabao Cup. I'm laughing at Man United saying, oh, we had a better season than you because we won the Carabao Cup. It's like, no, hang on a second. In that instance, as I've already pointed out, you've been beaten by either Brighton or Man City in the FA Cup. But, but okay. What a great season. They still Yay. might go on and win the FA Cup as well. But not in that instance. Not in the way that Not in the hypothetical that we're talking yeah. about. Fair enough. St- Christian Stellini said last week, John, that every match uh, remaining for Spurs, the last eight games, were cup finals. And then they go out and lose 3-2 to Bournemouth. Yes. Oh, what do you say? What I say is I'm just totally disheartened and disillusioned with the way the club's been run from a football perspective. Great business people. Uh, I just do think that there's a disconnect between being a supporter now and is Daniel Levy going to be there forever as the chairman? I mean, they're 22 years now. Is he going to be there for another 22 years? And th- then there really is, you can't you can't touch what it's, it's meant to be almost to be a supporter of a club when you don't feel, I don't have any confidence in the way the football product's been run there. It doesn't matter who the manager is, it'll be the 12th uh, permanent manager. Arsenal, you get a sense there's a, a journey that they're on under Arteta. Um, he seems to have a huge amount of control there. And I, I don't see that at Tottenham at all. And I think Harry Kane probably will leave um, if they get the money from him. I just don't see where Tottenham are going under the the, the leadership of the chairperson who has not proven uh, since he sacked Pochettino that, that the football product is, is, is clear. Uh, Porrick Daly makes the point is it not more that the chance mightn't come around again for Arsenal no matter how good Arteta is look at Klopp only managed one league as good as he has been I think that's the key point so whatever about Gary Neville's point about them being a, a slightly ahead of 
where they should be. Leicester were slightly ahead of where they should be. They were miles ahead of where they should be. That was like a magnificent flare-up where it turned out they had genuinely world-class players in several key positions. Um, and uh, that team got picked off fairly soon afterwards. Like, you know, if Arsenal don't win the league, is there a possibility that Saka and Martinelli end up at Barcelona and Real Madrid and somewhere else over the next couple of years? There is that possibility. So... Uh, you do kind of need to seize the moment when it presents itself and I, that's why I think they will feel let down at the end of the season that's why it will be heartbreaking for them if they don't manage to seal the deal and win the league they'll look back at the uh, Granite Xhaka uh, challenge they'll look back at the missed penalty from the weekend and they'll be like oh that'll always be a what yeah, might have been touching Newcastle on T6 about it Tottenham 2016 Tottenham 2017 uh, we had our chance and we're not going to get our chance again for, I don't know, 10, 20 years. And that's, that's why, why I, th- I think the clubs used to be sold. Yeah, I think that's why you've got to seize the moment as well. So that's yeah. the... Carpe that's, diem. That's the side of that. Um, so what else, JD? Uh, well, we could talk about um, Todd Bailey, I don't know if we're the horse racing or the uh, Just Stop Oil. I don't know if you, how disgusted you are, Shane, this morning about the, <laughs> um, the, the orange ball and snooker. How much right. is it worth? Yeah, how much is it worth is the question. The orange, yeah, it was quite a... Quite a protest. Imagine trashing the snooker, the most inoffensive sport in the world. Imagine trashing snooker. Imagine if you were a snooker fan like Shane and Anorak and, you know, you've saved up from another country. Look at that photo. Iconic. You've gone to Sheffield. You've paid your hotel money for your whatever your... um, Travel lodge or your holiday inn or whatever these hotels are, and <laughs> <laughs> very glamorous. Yeah, <laughs> you're in Sheffield, and you know you, you're so excited about the snooker, and and you've, they're so respectfully quiet in the audience, and then all this happens is these these people come in and trash the whole place, and you're just kind of thinking to yourself, oh, is this really <laughs> snooker loopy? Is this completely snooker loopy? And yeah. these people are not just doing; they're not helping climate change. Um, I don't think. Um, are they not? I don't think so. I, I just think people are just pissed off them, to be honest. Um, I, the, the, you know, everybody's everybody's aware of the stop oil and uh, everybody's. But people are probably more likely to go out and buy oil now today after that than stop it. I don't know if they. Are. I don't know if that's true. I think that's that, that's like, my, I mean, humor. Yeah, but I, um, I think protest seems to work. Did the Grand National protest work? I think it probably did. Yeah, I mean, uh, like certainly, there were more conversations about um, eating meat yesterday and the safety of horse racing than there would have been if there hadn't been a protest yeah I just think social media has amplified everything like 30 years ago there was a massive animal rights protest at the Grand National during the void race and there were smoke bombs all over the course and everything and the BBC and Aintree agreed that they wouldn't highlight it and it just kind of got Submerged now. There was a big controversy the fact that the race didn't even go ahead. I just think everything is amplified now by social media. And that, in a way, is a good thing because it, it forces a debate, but it also forces a polarization of extremes um, where you have, um, you know, the, the absolute zealots in one way or the other, and you don't really have then a middle ground around things. Um, like the race is undoubtedly safer. Um, than it was 30, 40 years ago. The fences are lower. It's almost like a four-mile hurdle race now. But that causes issues itself because the horses then go faster. They bunch up more. Um, jockeys look to get a better position. And maybe the argument would be to reduce the field to 30 runners because most of the issues in the Grand National happened in the first circuit. Um, but I do think it's a, it is a safer race. I just think horse racing as a entity is always going to have um, the p- potential for risk and the potential for accidents. You can't have jump racing without accidents, without fallers at any course throughout the whole year and without risk. And just that, that's just the nature of it. And there is a demand for the Grand National. It's watched by 600 million people worldwide. So there is an appeal, there is a demand for it. And maybe we just have to say, if you want to have it, you're going to have to accept that this is part of it. 
Anything else going on, Jerry? Um, have you spoken about Todd Bailey calling the Chelsea players embarrassing? I mean, an, an hour-long conversation. This is ridiculous. But just back to the Tottenham point again, though, that there is a, if you're a fan, you can't touch this. You can't influence, um, and maybe you never could, but you can't influence what's going to happen at your football club. And that's why I think international football is so popular at times, because there's a degree of investment in your country. And we can have debates about Stephen Kenny this or Stephen Kenny that or the FAI this or the FAI that. With a football club, it's really just... Like, what can Tottenham do to, to change um, the direction of the football product there? Nothing. Can they have protests? Can they, can they vote with their feet and not go to the games? I don't know. I, I do wonder if Todd was in explaining to the dressing room how embarrassed he was because somebody was giving him... They were giving it to him at the yeah. end of the game. And and maybe I'd Chelsea wonder. are better at that, at that than Tottenham. He was, uh, I think Chelsea are generally... They're, they're a bit more of an edgier fan base in that regard. Um, the, like the Man United fans have been not not afraid to go against the Glazers in the European Super League and that kind of thing. Should the owners be anywhere near the dressing room? Do they have every right to be in the dressing room, do you think? Or should they stay away from the football? I think, I mean, you know... Well, what would you do if you if you own a football club? I'd maybe go in and say a few words after a match and yeah. say, I hope, hope things get better, oh, keep that's going, well keep done. going. Yeah, you, oh, that's, that's I wouldn't sit there for an hour. Fair play to you there, yeah. I've quite a lot in Ireland. I've spent 600 million on you chumps. But I wouldn't sit there... Put- 3.6 billion I've spent on you chumps. Pointing fingers at players and saying using the word, words like I think you would. I think you would. Did, would you? I think you would. Remember yeah, the GA sponsors? I would, yeah. The GA sponsors used to go into dressing rooms, didn't they? Uh, that was... Uh, they got to touch the hem of the... Yeah, yeah. Or the hem of the shirt that they sponsor. Um, right. Yeah. All right, lads. JD, good stuff. More from John on Saturday afternoon on Off the Ball on News Talk. Uh, now, I do want to tell you about a big night that we have coming up. It's a live UEFA Champions League roadshow in partnership with Just Eat on the 3rd of May in the Mansion House in Dublin. We're going to be joined by UEFA Champions League winners John O'Shea and Wes Brown, along with Arsenal legend Paul Merson. It's sure to be a brilliant night's entertainment. This is an exclusive off-air event. Tickets are limited, so don't delay. Go to offtheball.com forward slash events. We will see you on the night. Just Eat, the official food delivery partner of the UEFA Champions League. Now, Harry Pryor of the Anfield Wrap is with us to talk to us about a big win for Liverpool last night. Uh, Harry, we've seen this movie before where Liverpool absolutely thump somebody and then go out the next week and get beaten. Um, but surely this time it's different, right? <laughs> Every time we've said it's different, I've probably come on after here after a few big wins and said, oh, things will be different now. The season will click into place. And that's kind of been the nature of Liverpool's season. The lack of consistency has been quite alarming at times. And we have had these really big wins and then crash back down to earth. And actually, funny enough, I believe that was our first win in all competitions since the 7-0 against Manchester United at Anfield. So you can tell the way that things have gone since then. But yeah, it definitely looked like a more positive performance. And look, the manager came out after the game yesterday and said that it, that it had clicked and, and the kind of one thing that does give me hope that maybe things will be brighter for the end of the season but crucially looking ahead to next season is the fact that the formation was very different they were trying different things last night and they worked I think at times this season the, the, the things have clicked in the standard 4-3-3 formation or things have just been good over a period of 90 minutes but there's not been any real change and last night I saw real change real effort to make things different and that benefited every individual on the pitch. How, how were they different last night? What was the, the change that you witnessed? Yeah, I think Trent Alexander-Arnold being in this new hybrid role was probably the biggest one for me, playing a back three, essentially. So you had Canati on the right-hand side, Virgil van Dijk, and then and then Robertson on the left. And Fabinho kind of dropping back when Liverpool were out of possession and Trent kind of 
sometimes coming back into defence, but just being able to roam a bit more freely. And I think that system allow players to just play to their strengths a little bit more, but particularly particularly Trent's. And I think you could see when he's given options and when he's given the ability to look up from kind of the heart of the pitch and the heart of the midfield, he can be so much more creative and, and have so much more impact on the game. And he gets two assists last night as well. So you kind of see that in real play as well. But Curtis Jones, for me, he, he kind of was playing a little bit higher up the pitch and gets to have a real impact in that way as well. And then all of the forwards, you kind of see how their flexibility in, in terms of them not having to be stuck in sort of central right left then being able to roam around the bit the, the forward area of the pitch really helped them so it was a system that was set up to get the best out of the players he has available because as much as we want to talk about Liverpool bringing in new players that's not going to happen now before the end of the season so we need to try some new things and that's exactly what happened that position suits him perfectly Trent Harry doesn't it I mean he we were trying to find a way, I guess Klopp was trying to find a way of bringing him into into midfield, but now he's managed to, to do it, but also keep it right back as well. And, and as you say, the assists are going to come now, and that was the thing that was missing this season. Yeah, exactly. And you mentioned the assist. The first one comes from a more natural right-back position. It's kind of the pass we've seen from Trent quite a few times. It's the one that he's used. we're used to seeing from him. And then the second one was from more of a central role, and you can kind of see how the options that he has and the freedom that he has will really benefit him. And it, it will be really interesting now to see whether this is just something of a quick fix this season or whether Klopp is trying this out now to build ahead to next season. And if so, that, that I think changes plans for what needs to happen in the summer. But yeah, definitely being able to have that space. And I think at times in the game yesterday, you see how he looks up and how he's not instantly crowded by defenders. And he's, he enjoys that. He has time to take a look, make the pass that he wants to make, maybe make a run. And that seemed to suit him down to the ground. Does it feel different from the, the, the victory over Manchester United and that can, can they push on now and, and, and not allow those results? And I think it was Bournemouth, wasn't it, after the United game that, that uh, Liverpool fell to a defeat. So does this feel like different, a bit of a turning point, a push for top four possibly? Yeah, I'm kind of reluctant to say anything's a turning point this season when we've been burnt a lot of times by results going badly after a really, really good result. So I don't know. And I think pushing for top four now maybe feels a little bit unrealistic. But what I kind of want to see now is growth and progress for next season. Because I think at times when we've finished seasons a little bit weaker than we've played the rest of the season, the next season hasn't started so well. So I think priority now is just really making sure that there's a, a kind of awareness that this is this is kind of a, a pre-season in a weird way. Let's try out a few things, see what works, and then kind of see where the table lands at the end of the season. I think the manager said as much Last night, we'll kind of go into the next nine games. I think it is now. See where the table lands at the end of it, but just make sure you're trying to win the next nine because it's not going to be an easy task to get back into that top four if that is the aim. But who knows? Nothing's impossible. What has been the response from the people who consume the Anfield rap to the news leaking or being briefed or however it came out that Jude Bellingham wasn't going to be an option this summer? What was the response generally from your users? Yeah, one of... Probably a overwhelming negativity, I would say. I think a lot of people were really expecting that Jude Bellingham would be the big push for the summer, only because it was spoken about so much in January and even into last summer that they were kind of saving up funds, the owners, to make a big push for Jude Bellingham. And I think what was kind of confusing for people is that everyone always knew how much Jude Bellingham would cost. He was never going to be a player that you'd get for under £100 million. So now that the line... Who, who knows whether it's true or not, but the line that the media have mainly been going with is that they 
felt that he was too expensive. Well, we, we kind of always knew that. I think that the reality is that Liverpool, Liverpool's ownership and, and management have realised there's so much more work that needs to be done that they can't invest that much into just one player because they need to spread the funds a little bit more over four positions or maybe even more. So I, I kind of, you know... It's, it makes sense from a pure business perspective, but also I think it's about time that Liverpool fans kind of felt like they were going after a really big player, a really exciting player, and that is exactly what Jude Bellingham was. So I understand where the frustration has come from. The the team, as lined out last night with uh, Jota, Gakpo and Salah starting, we did have, I, I think, the, the full array of attacking players available so Luis Diaz comes off the bench Darwin Nunes comes off the bench and obviously Firmino's leaving we know at the end of the season but um, is there a future where all five players are rotated in and out of the team over the course of a full season if they were to remain fit which let's face it is unlikely anyway yeah, I think it's probably puts Liverpool in quite a good position in that forward line. And that's maybe something you can't say about the midfield and, and the defence at the moment. So, yeah, we know that Firmino is is leaving in the summer. But if you look back a couple of years ago, it was, it was Salah Mane, Firmino, who were just going again and again and again. And then you brought Jota into the mix and we felt really good about having four forwards that you could rely on. And now we've got Diaz in that mix as well. We're losing Firmino. We've got Gakpo and Nunes. It's all kind of shifting a little bit. But you hopefully go into next season having five really good top level players who you can really rely on I think Gakpo's been so impressive in the last few games in particular where he's he's really kind of showing what he can do on the ball and how comfortable he is Nunes we can see week on week adapting a little bit more I think it's taken him more time but he he seems to be really finding his feet and getting those goals he gets another one last night and yeah Salah's obviously signed that new contract last season so he'll still be a big part and, and Diaz if we can keep them all fit you think that was an area of the pitch where, yeah, Klopp can rely on five really, really talented players. Yeah, and I suppose I'm, I'm comparing and contrasting that with the uh, the Bellingham decision is that they've actually managed that change relatively well over the course of the, the last couple of seasons from a position of strength. It looks like next season it'll still be a position of strength. And that's why I would give the hierarchy at least some not a free pass, but some credit in the bank for their ability to regenerate that. If they can do something similar by spending the £100 million on three £30 million players, two of whom immediately uh, contribute into the midfield area, then all of a sudden it's like, OK, I understand why I didn't spend everything on one player. Yeah, I can kind of see that point of view, but to an extent, that forward line, the way that they regenerated that was really clever. And they, they did that because they had foresight. So they knew that Sadio Mane was perhaps going to leave. So they brought in a replacement. They knew that, you know, that Gakpo needed to be brought in. They've just not really done that in midfield. And I think that's why so many fans are frustrated because they can see that players are either aging or not getting the game time or consistently injured. And yeah, I think since 2018, the only first team senior for, uh, midfielder that's been brought in is Thiago. So if they've got that foresight for the forward line, why is that not translated to, to midfield? And arguably it has in defence as well, bringing Canate, and that was a really clever signing for around the 30 million mark, 36, I believe it was. So why is the midfield kind of been left to to rot on its own, I suppose. So, yeah, it's it's obviously a good thing that forward line hasn't, but then it causes more frustration because people can see clear as day that the midfield hasn't had the attention that it needs. Diogo Jota was one massive positive out of last night, Harriet. I mean, he's been bereft of confidence for, for quite some time and, and even at the start of the game last night, you're thinking, still, this is this is a guy whose who's touch just isn't there. But he gets his couple of goals and this could be the start of a good spell for him. Yeah, the first 20 minutes or so, as you mentioned, were, were not the, the best start, Diogo, but... 
I think with him, he's been Klopp's preferred option when he is fit a lot of the time because of the work that he does on the ball and in terms of assists and build-up play. But then last night, you see the other element of his game, which is so important, which is getting the goals. It's been around a year, Mark, since he's last scored. So it's it was really crucial for him to get them. And, and then he gets the other one later on in the game as well. So you can see the amount of confidence that's brimming through him and the amount that has an impact on his gameplay as well. So yeah, hopefully now that he has got those goals and that's kind of off the back of his mind that he hasn't scored in nearly a year or whatever the time frame is that he can push forward now. So yeah, I was impressed with his performance probably post post the 20 minute mark. Bad mistake by Ibrahim Akinade for the for the Leeds goal. Of course, it doesn't matter at this this rate, but it's still concerning to see those little defensive slips. Yeah, it's kind of indicative of Liverpool's season, how things have been going. Even when the game seems to be fully in Liverpool's control, there's little mistakes and errors that that happen. And then suddenly you're, you concede a really easy goal that should never happen. Canate isn't one to make mistakes very often. So, hope, you know, I'm glad it was in a game that didn't really have any outcome in the end. But yeah, it's kind of characteristic of things that have been happening at Liverpool. Too many silly mistakes, too many giving the ball away in key areas and conceding an easy goal. But luckily, the response was really good and that was what pleased me the most last night. Straight away, his head was up. It was like, right, doesn't matter. We're going to build from here and we'll we'll all be fine. And Liverpool haven't dealt well with adversity this season and, and they did last night. It was interesting to see the, the, the pressing and the work rate and Jurgen Klopp seemed to reference that in his post-match comments as well that that, that has been something that, that is a trademark of this Liverpool team in recent seasons and we haven't seen it this year people pointed to Liverpool maybe being tired after last year's campaign and uh, competing on four fronts but clearly that work rate and pressing is starting to come back a little bit Yeah, there was a desire to win the ball back that hasn't been there in a lot of games this season I think you've watched certain games where it's just felt like Liverpool have let the opposition control the pace of it. They've let them pass around in any way they want. They've let them decide what they want to do. And, and last night was a little bit of a change in that Liverpool were deciding the pace of the game. They were the ones winning the ball back high up the pitch. That intensity you mentioned, it was really palpable. And, and we've missed that so much as, as Liverpool fans watching the game. So hopefully, you know, that can be a, a positive thing that we can take forward to the next games. But the manager said it himself, We've been trying to do that all season. I'm not entirely sure why it's not been clicking and it's not been working. And sometimes it was a, a mixture of mental, physical fatigue and a lack of confidence, a lack of trust in each other. But all those things seem to work last night. And when they do still play that high-intensity football, winning the ball back, pressing high at the pitch, you can see how, how the benefits come from that. For the next uh, five league games are at home. Um, so they've got Forest at home, they're away at West Ham, then they've got Spurs, Fulham and Brentford in a run of games all at home which their home form has been really good this season so actually they could go on a bit of a run here and suddenly be on the coattails of the teams battling for fourth yeah I'm scared to say Liverpool Liverpool are going to go on a run because they'll probably embarrass me later down the line but no the the home form has still been really good amidst the season where results haven't been that great and, and neither performances so that does give you a little bit of hope I think people have conflicting views on whether they'd want to finish in the Europa League or Europa Conference League spots. But yeah, just trying to win as many of those as possible because Newcastle and Tottenham are making errors. They're the ones kind of in and around. I know there's Aston Villa, Brighton above Liverpool as well at the moment. But those those are the ones in particular you think are challenging for that fourth spot of the top four. So they are both making mistakes. There is nine games left to play. So just see what happens come the end of them. That away form as well, uh, on the other um, element of that, Harriet, 
that's the first win since mid-February Liverpool have had away from home you look at the away games to come you've got West Ham Leicester and Southampton away from home all very winnable games so all of a sudden if you can pick up a bit of away form to add to what happens at Anfield then they should be in good shape yeah all very winnable games but it is the teams in the bottom half of the table away from home that Liverpool have really really struggled with this season it goes back to the first day of the season the, the game away to Fulham that they drew 2-2 and Fulham have had a good season since then but it was indicative of how Liverpool's away form was going to play out over the course of the season they look a bit uh, devoid of, of any real sense of energy and um, all these things when they're away from home last night was the first time in a really long time that I think they've performed well not at Anfield so hopefully that will give them a bit of confidence that they can do it and they can do it this season they don't need to kind of wipe the season off and start again next year and yeah if they can pick up points in some of these games and like you said all of them should be winnable games in theory on paper then that that might lead them to a late charge for top four but at the moment I'm not entirely sure I can see that happening. Uh, the constant drumbeat of uh, potential uh, sale originally and then investment that seems to have gone a little bit quiet just recently. What's the, the latest scenario that you think is most likely to happen? Yeah, well, there was new noises coming out of the, of the club that FSG didn't want to sell the club. And I think they were looking for potential investment and who knows when that will come. But I think that is the most likely scenario moving forward now that FSG will maintain kind of majority ownership of the club and then be looking to bring in a few minority stakeholders or minority investors, whatever you want to call it perhaps to boost the the kind of funds that they have in the summer, perhaps to boost the funds they have moving forward in investment. But FSG have always kind of been really careful with how they use their money. They've never wanted to invest drastically more than they're bringing in the other way in, in with regards to transfers. So I think, yeah, the most likely scenario now is that they do bring in an external investor, but how much that is and how much they're willing to to bring in is, is another question at the moment. Yeah, we'll wait and see. Harriet, good stuff. Thanks a million. Cheers. Thanks a lot. Bye. Harriet Pryor, the Anfield Rap there, talking to us about the situation at Liverpool. That fixture list that you've uh, read out, so, um, I mean... It's not bad, is it? Well, it's like, it's kind of dream dream scenario. Uh, yeah, when your away games are against some of the bottom teams, I know Harry had mentioned that their form against the bottom teams hasn't been good, but... but Southampton on the last day of the season, you would expect, will already be gone. Yeah. Now, whether or not that frees them up to play the best football of the season, who knows? Uh, Leicester is a week prior to that. It's actually 13 days, two weeks prior to to, to that that's the other away game and West Ham now West Ham all of a sudden look to have a little bit of life in them yeah um, so the question for Liverpool has always been can they keep it going like they get a big result and they stop like so all of a sudden it's just a little bit of consistency that you're looking for with this Liverpool team yeah from from the time they went 2-0 down to uh, to Arsenal they've been great yeah from that period onwards so maybe that Arsenal game is like a game, and, a game and a half here so uh, <laughs> we're not getting too carried away yeah but even you look at players like Curtis Jones last night he starts for the third game in a row after being out for a period and all of a sudden there's a little bit of consistency with the team even so yeah I mean they, they did try and sign Arthur Mello hoping that he was going to be an answer at midfield and then he's obviously been a complete bust mm. um, so it's not like they they weren't entirely aware and I think they assumed that some of those younger players would be better for longer and they'd get more minutes out of them at a high level than um, they'd previously expected but I don't know they, there is like they have managed to sign all those forward players with no one ever really expecting them to sign those forward players mm. like Jota was a surprise Gakpo was a surprise um, 
uh, Nunez and Diaz kind of came a window earlier than we thought they would. Yeah. And so next season they'll have all those five players assuming Salah stays in the summer as their forwards. It's a good forward line. Oh, it's brilliant. Do you know what I mean? On like week in, week out, you're going to have somebody who's in form. Yep. Yeah, and, and the other thing as well, Jurgen Klopp, after the match last night, he, he looks a little bit more relaxed. It's easy to be relaxed after you win 6-1 at home, granted, or 6-1 away from home. Um, but even last week in the press conference, he was like, not attacking some of the Liverpool journalists, but really saying, you know, I read in the papers some of the stories you're writing and they are just completely wrong. Properly going after some of the journalists and the stories that he did, he was he talking about. Uh, there was no, there was no indication as to which which stories in particular he was he was talking about. But but certainly, Jurgen Klopp is a man who reads the newspapers, listens to the coverage. Or he he listened to Gabby Agbonlahor and talks sport at one point. I think he he mentioned in a press conference. So he's a man that that pays attention to what's being said and written about this Liverpool team. Um, but looked a man a little bit more at peace last night after the match. A result like that clearly you're going to be anyway. Really interesting to see how that uh, Trent role evolves like he's still only 24 clearly worth having in your team if you can do something with him what would Pep do with Trent in his side would he be burned out would he be would he leave him the bench would he have replaced him with John Stones is that what we're saying here like sell him to Bayern Munich I don't think so I think he'd find a way to get him into that role where you step into midfield like trying to turn him into Philip Lamb and um, I don't know maybe that's the next evolution for Klopp and it's like brave and exciting and they have an overload in midfield all of a sudden and all the pressure and you know there's a way for that to work so anyway uh, here's some highlights on the OTV podcast network for you today the latest from uh, the Hurling podcast where they're doing their predictions for the season there are some hostages to fortune it's fair to say Joe Canning chats to Ashling O'Reilly at the uh, launch of Borgash Energy's uh, coverage for the year and Monday Night Rugby looking back on the uh, weekend's big stories and, of course, the uh, Ireland performance in the Six Nations. More preview of that coming your way across all of our network over the course of the rest of the week. And a reminder, the football pod are hitting the road again. They're heading to Killarney for their first show of the summer with thanks to AIB. Tommy Rooney, Paddy Andrews and James O'Donoghue will be bringing the football pod to the Great Southern Hotel for a live episode on Thursday, the 4th of May. Join us for a brilliant night of football, chat and crack with plenty of focus on the All-Ireland Champions and the contenders who are coming for their throne. It's an exclusive off-air event. Tickets are limited, so don't delay. Go to offtheball.com forward slash events. It's all in partnership with AIB. Check out the hashtag the toughest for more. After these ads, Alex Denning. OTB AM with Gillette Labs. Get the ultimate shave or your money back. Neon Night Edition, available now. It's uh, 13 minutes past nine. You're watching OTB AM. I'm delighted to say we're joined in studio by Alex Denning, Motorsport Ireland Young Driver of the Year. Alex, good morning to you. How are you? Good morning, guys. How are you? Last time we saw you, we all had our helmets on, so you didn't recognise us. <laughs> yeah. And uh, myself and Shane and Nathan. Yeah. Is just three of us? I think so, yeah. Yeah. Um... Yeah, it was competitive, but pretty sure I was the fastest. Well, Nathan begs to differ, but <laughs> you're sitting here in front of me, yeah. so I suppose you are. It was nervy, I'll tell you. The first few laps, you're thinking, this is, uh, how do these guys do this for a living? But once you get into it, you're like, this. it's properly addictive. Like it, you, you can sense the thrill, but um, it was an experience and a half, I have to say. When we were down there, you were waiting to find out you'd been shortlisted for the um, uh, Motorsport Island Young Driver of the Year, but you ended up winning it. Congratulations! Yeah, thank you very much. There was 140 candidates, and at that point, we were shortlisted down to three people. So, two of the other instructors were actually working in Mandela at the time. So, uh, yeah, quite a nerve-wracking time. But we had a great time with you guys down there. Like you said, it's um, it's quite a unique experience, and it's the same for us guys. Every time we get into a faster car, um, 
it feels surreal how fast you're going but mm. you know you felt it as well after three or four laps it just becomes normal until you look down at the speed and see so you're down yeah. 200 kilometers an hour <laughs> yeah what do you normally drive what like what are you what car are you driving in at the moment what are you racing in at the moment uh, so I'm driving an Aston Martin GT4 car um, so that's a spin off of their production road car um, and they race against six other manufacturers in GT4 European series. Right. And so uh, is that a single seater? That's a no. No. So it's a sports car. So it's like a, a, any kind of supercar you'd see on the road, but they're a fully fledged race car. They're built from the factory as a race car. Um, so they're fully stripped out. They're on slick tyres. Uh, they have a racing gearbox, etc., etc. So. Um, not only do they go fast in a straight line but they go very fast around the corners what speed are they going? Um, top speed about 250-260 kilometres oh my goodness right and so where are you racing those? Um, so first weekend is Monza next weekend uh, or this weekend even um, and that's going to be the fastest track on the calendar so we'll be seeing them top speeds 250 kilometres an hour Temple of Speed yeah Temple of Speed yeah I've never been there but uh, last year I'd never been to any of the tracks in the UK and um, it was a it was a first time every time but you know I have a, I have a racing simulator at home that, that simulates the, the track and the car and it's incredibly accurate so as soon as I get there I hit the ground running You've been watching Formula 1 since you were a kid no doubt so like get going to Monza for the first time this weekend and taking a, a really fast car around the track that must be dream come true stuff absolutely yeah it's surreal and I can't, you know I have to remind myself every time I go to these tracks that how privileged I am to do it and like you know you take it back and look five years ago if I had a look at the, the situation I was going to be in now I wouldn't believe it so yeah it's um, it's important to remind yourself of, of how lucky we are to do these things and for sure yeah it's going to be surreal you know when I, when I stand in, up in the bank and in Monza for the first time so You mentioned it's an Aston Martin car since we were talking to you last I think you were signed up to the Aston Martin Academy as well which is a, a massive massive step in your career what, is, what does it mean for you to, to, to have that what does it entail? Yeah, it, it means a lot, you know. So, um, it entails of there's probably four or five hundred Aston Martin drivers across the world, but I'm narrowed down to to one of twenty. Um, they give us support for racing simulation, media, fitness, uh, and guide us through our career. So, the goal is to win that, and if I win that, I get factory assistance. So I'm affiliated with the brand to to race for Aston Martin as such. Um, that came about about three weeks ago after they saw my progress. I'd, I'd won race out in Spain uh, where I finished second on my first time out. So um, to be affiliated with a brand with such heritage is, you know, means the world to me. You've been balancing college work uh, in the last couple of years as well with, with, with driving. Like, how, do you, how do you even manage that? Because it seems like such a discipline, driving, that is, uh, that you need to be fully invested in it. You need to be fully concentrated on it. So it must have been quite a, a challenge, I guess, to be, I guess thinking of other things as well. Well, yeah, I'm, cl- I'm glad it's over at the moment. Yeah, I'm graduated now, so all I have to I have to worry about is is my motor racing. But yeah, for sure, it was it was a massive balancing act. Um, I had my first race last year, which we were contemplating not even doing because of my final year exams the week afterwards. So, um, I had practice on the Thursday. I was studying on the Friday, back to racing on the Saturday or on Sunday, but. I always find you can make time for these things. You know, when when you don't have anything to do, you end up doing nothing. And then when you have lots to do, you actually end up doing so much more. Uh, so it was just about balancing things. And I found that, you know, I was able to balance it quite nicely. And 
I was able to get my degree whilst also finishing quite highly in the racing. I remember talking to like the likes of Alex Stone even down at Mondello before, and and it it, it often comes the racing gene that way. Like your family is steeped in racing completely. Parents, you've grandparents, aunties, uncles. Literally, you were never going to be doing anything else. No, it was yeah, it was fully ingrained as, in, in me as a child. Um, I've been racing for nearly sixteen years now. Uh, most people look at me and say, "You you hardly even look sixteen. How the hell are you racing sixteen years?" But uh, I started back uh, in two thousand seven racing carts. Uh, at that stage, my both my parents were racing against each other. Um, my my grandfather used to race. Uh, my aunt, two of my aunties used to race. My uncle. What were they all? My brother. All the same type of car, or uh, di- different different cars. Uh, my dad raced in Clio Cup and Fiat Punto Abarth. He was a five-time champion, so he was he was the most successful out of them all. But yeah, mainly tin top saloons, mainly in Ireland. Um, so yeah, there was never never any time that we expected to be doing anything else. Did you see, your parents used to race against each other. <laughs> yeah, was that how they met? Say again? Is that how they met? They met through racing? No, no, they met, they met separately to that, but um, I think um, my mum got the bug off my dad, and there's actually some photographs of uh, my mum running into my dad, so uh, <laughs> they came to blows. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay, so tell us, about you, you start out as a, a carter. What's the progress? Like, how do you keep going? And, and um, Ultimately, what is there a specific aim? Like, is is Formula One the dream? Is that a realistic dream? How do you get there? What's the staging post along the way? Or are there other loads of other things you could do? Be like, yeah, that's a brilliant career for me. Yeah, you, there's many spin-offs you can do at a race, and I've I've chose the GT route in particular because nowadays it's extremely difficult uh, to race with Formula One, as many people know. You know, you need you need luck, you need skill, you need contacts, and you need a lot of money. Um, so the GT route was a was a more realistic route and there's a lot more opportunities there um, and as you said like you know people I started racing carts at 8 you can actually start racing carts at 5 now so you've little kids coming in this height that are doing 70 kilometres an hour I still can't comprehend it but uh, yeah when I was growing up karting it was it was it was always a you know a way of life but it was only when I got to the age of 18 where I was I was winning cards at a national level that I said you know there could be a career path in this, and when I when I won the Fiesta ST Championship in Ireland and beat everyone else in Ireland, I knew that there was a strong chance that I could make a career out of this. So, and so what's the step up from there? To talk us through that kind of so you go from the Fiesta in Ireland. How do you where do you go next? Yeah, so uh, I won the Fiesta ST Championship in Ireland, um, and then I went to the UK to the mini JCW championship which is one of the most prestigious championships underneath the British touring cars so um, and so JCW what cars what cars it's, are a, it's a mini JCW so it's their their fastest uh, road car which is yeah it doesn't resemble much of the road car after a while but um, that was last year and they're a very tricky car to drive even more so than the Aston Martin and I had seven wins in that and finished second overall in the championship so yeah, that gave me a strong confidence boost, and and I've now made the move into Europe. Right, and how do you go from the England success? Is there an agent along the way who's working on behalf of the team who's saying, "Here, come and try out for this"? And and it's is there like a one? Is that race in Spain basically? Uh, if you do well here, you know, it sounds like a lot of pressure on that one event, or was it kind of preordained in advance of that? Like, just 
don't screw this up and you'll be grand. How does that work? <laughs> There's a lot of questions there. Um, yeah, so a lot of people have managers who, um, who you know, carve the path for them. I've always chose to do my own thing um, because I always have my own beliefs perfectly aligned. But, um, yeah, I, I picked the route out for myself. Uh, you spoke about pressure there. I, I always just think of one race ahead, never think of the bigger picture. You know, I obviously, obviously have a a three-year plan but um yeah i just try to do the best job as as i go along but yeah i always i always think of what's what's best for me at that time where do i want to be and what can give me the best platform to to get there and how do aston martin get interested on the back of the minis what's that process well it was that was all that was all preempted by myself so i said you know i want to be an aston martin factory driver um and, and what's going to get me there? And the answer was GT4. Okay. So after I did one race completely um, organised by myself, that's what arised the interest from Master Martin themselves. Okay. It's funny that we had James Rowan's studio, because they're driver, obviously over in Indy now in America, but he he's almost like a businessman. You talk about the sponsorship and the difficulty in raising sponsorship and awareness and doing interviews, I guess, is one way as well of uh, you know getting the media interest in your own profile. But... You're almost like a businessman as well, because James was telling us he was going over to, to meetings in America and sitting in conference rooms and chatting to people and trying to drum up. So you're 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 a driver in one in one element, but you're also essentially a business person. Yeah, well, like you say, it's it's uh, it's selling yourself. Um, you know, we don't get on the grid by by sitting back. The driving of the car is just one small piece of the jigsaw. Um, so you know it's far in excess of six figures to go motor racing for the year at this level and um, I, f- I fund the, the whole campaign through sponsorship uh, like you guys touched on earlier I won the Motorsport Ireland Young Driver of the Year award for 50,000 euros um, and but still I had to come up with a lot more and you know I, I reach out to contacts I reach out to business and corporations who, who might be interested in it and I have to sell my entity and what I can offer to businesses to expose their brand to get me on the grid to go racing. Do you ever feel pressure? Because like you're, you mentioned that you look 16. You're not quite 16. You're, you're 23 now, is it? Yeah, 23. So, and even when I'm speaking to Alex Dunn and, and James Rowe and these lads, you all have an aura. There's a, there's a confidence. It's not quite an arrogance, but it's a, a sense of your own self and, and belief in what, what, what you do. So I wonder, do you ever feel pressure? No. <laughs> Never. No, I um, like I, like I touched on earlier. I I always try to just think of the next race. Uh, you can get very caught up if you're going for a championship. Oh, what am I going to do in a year? You know, worry. Uh, and it's the same when you're raising a budget to go racing. You know, if you think about the bigger picture, you go, "Geez, how how the hell am I going to raise all that money? How am I going to win the races? I'm up against this fella and this fella." Um, you just have to bring it back and believe in what you've done and 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 you know just take you can't take no for an answer just look forward to where you want to be and and you and you'll get there go on i was going to ask about the specifics then of the season so monza this week yeah uh, how many races are in that season uh so there's six weekends um spread across from april to october and we have two races per weekend so it's uh each race is an hour long we swap over we share the drive with another driver so it's half an hour each and uh, two two races per weekend. Okay. And are you guaranteed to be in the car for the whole season, or is it like... Provided the other driver doesn't crash, yes. Um, but 
but yeah, I've I've signed for the full season. Okay, and are you in the car on your own for that? Yeah, you're in you're in the car on your own, but you, then you do a pit stop to okay uh, to, to share in the endurance race. Okay, right. And uh, how do you how do you measure your success versus everybody else's distance travelled in that half hour? Yeah, so it's over the hour race. It's whoever completes the most amount of laps in the least amount of time. So right. Um, you know, it is it is a balancing act because there's someone else sharing the drive, but. Uh, Aston Martin have all sorts of metrics that can disentangle your performance from the other driver's performance or even if the Aston Martins are slightly slower than another car you know they can disentangle all that they've more metrics than I can possibly think of but uh, yeah you have to focus on your performance as well as the other driver's performance because it's a team event and um, you know, if you go out and burn out the tires within the half an hour and give the car to him with no tires, then mm-hmm. you're not going to win the race. So yeah, it's it's a team event. There'll be a little bit of tension after that. <laughs> Absolutely, I, I imagine. Yeah. Absolutely. And so that's the the plan for the next five six months is kind of entirely focused on that. How do you prepare physically for that? Then what's the like? What's your uh, physical regimen like? And how intense is that half an hour on the body? Yeah, it's massively intense. I I underestimated going going to Spain earlier in the year. It's a, bit, a big jump up from the minis. Um, so like you've over three G's of G-force and everything is based out of your core, your arms, your neck and your back. So um, I've, do, I've done a lot of physical preparation since I, I run, go to the gym. Uh, yeah, so I sponsor gym membership as well, which helps massively. And yeah, I, I normally do mountain biking. Uh, I had a mountain biking crash two weeks ago, so Jeez. I'm going to stay off the mountain bike for the year. The, the heat as well, like I, I got out of that car at Mondello Park that day on a normal day in Ireland, like drenched in sweat. And I, we, we were in our own civvies, like, but I mean, you've been racing in 37 degree heat, like you mentioned yeah. Spain and all these places. Like that must be with all the gear on and the helmet and everything, just physically arduous. Oh, it's massive. You know, you have, uh, you have your helmet on, you have balaclava, you have underlayers, you have the suit and well, luckily this year we have aircon, but we've never had aircon before. So, like you said last year, thirty-seven degree heat and snatted him with all the fireproof suit on. You don't really think about it on at the time. It's it's when the race finishes, and you can actually unwind and relax that you you feel like you're going to collapse. Can you drink water during the race? Or yeah, we can now. So in in GT racing and endurance racing, there's a drink system in the car. Um, right. But again, that gets that that also gets hot when it's you know it can be sixty seventy degrees and heat in the car. So um, I tried to do some heated spinning classes and some physical work even in the sauna to to prepare for the heats. Hot in, yoga in is your is your only yeah, man. Yeah. And um, so, what does success look like then over the next four or five months? Is, do you have to win races in the Aston Martin? Is that what the expectation is? Uh, my aim is to be at the front of the Astons. Like I said, there, there there can be a difference in the performance across different manufacturers. So my aim is to be at the front of the Aston Martins. And if that so happens to be the front of the overall grid, absolutely fantastic. Uh, sorry, uh, you said there were six other teams, is that right? So there's six other different cars. So right. there's Audi, Mercedes, Porsche, McLaren, uh, Toyota, Aston Martin and Chevrolet so and how many Aston Martins are there in the race there's going to be 16 Aston Martins okay but 52 cars 52 cars 
50 at any pounds. one time on the on the track at one time on the holy track, shit yeah. that's a lot yeah a, <laughs> a lot, lot of traffic yeah I've, I've never raced against that many people I, I didn't believe it when I first heard it but and is there overtaking in that half hour or <laughs> yeah, there is right yeah. well hopefully if we're if we're out the front we won't need to do any overtaking wow okay that's but yeah, 52 cars then into turn one in Monza is going to be interesting to say How do you simulate that? Because like, no matter how good your simulator at home is, it's not quite... Can it manage 52 cars in the race? Yeah, you can uh, you, you can do online races. I've, I've, I've done online races against Max Verstappen, uh, even Fernando Alonso, um, where you can have 20, 30 cars on it, and it's the same principle. You're racing against real guys on, on real tracks. Right. And does that feel real? Does it feel? Yeah, it does. Close yeah, it yeah. is very. It's set, exact same principles. You know, if you race someone a certain way or make certain mistakes, you'll have the same um, same consequences. So yeah, it is quite close. But uh, like you said, it's the best thing is is to do the real thing and and do real races. And the only way you can do that is experience over the years. Right, uh, Alex. We had the the terrible news last week of Craig Breen's. Uh, death over in Croatia and we had Art McCarrick from, from Motorsport Ireland on paying tribute to him and um, it, just an unimaginably difficult time for him for his family and for his friends but such a blow to the Irish motorsport family as well because he was someone who seemed very very well liked such a talented driver and someone you knew as well Yes it is it's it's absolutely surreal uh, I still can't really comprehend what, what has happened Um when I when I started racing back in two thousand eight, he was he was my mechanic for my first year of karting, and even when I won the Young Driver of the Year award, he came out to celebrate. So uh, massive blow to me, but especially to his close friends and his family and James and and everyone. It's just surreal. It's, it was a freak accident uh, and very unfortunate. A huge blow to the the Irish motoring community. That's something that Art touched on as well last week. He talked about the fact that Craig used to come back and always race in Ireland, and he always remembered where he came from and, and, and he was a world class driver but, but always was keen to come back and, and give back and even the fact that you say he came back and helped celebrate your award as well it speaks volumes of the man Yeah absolutely he he did even two days before he passed he was he was back down in Galway to his roots bringing young talent into the sport and mentoring and tutoring them so I couldn't speak higher of the man and it's just a massive blow to, to everyone in Irish motor racing and yeah, condolence to his close family and friends. Yeah, indeed. We wish you the very best of luck with the year, Alex. Thanks a million for joining Thank us today. Thank you very much, Jared. Thank you, Shane. It's uh, Alex Denning, Motorsport Ireland, Young Driver of the Year and uh, hopefully future star. Uh, OTBIM with Gillette Labs. Get the ultimate shave or your money back. Neon Night Edition is available now. OTB AM with Gillette Labs. Get the ultimate shave or your money back. Neon Night Edition available now.